0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: I come here tonight and plead with you. Right, nice. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian emancipation. Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennysonian or Johnsonian civil rights bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> Don't let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage. Somebody said earlier tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, yes, I'm black, I'm proud of it, I'm black and beautiful.
3: McHale, Gusty Renegade Justice, in for another program, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, Today's date, Monday, January 16th, 2012. So I have been told. Um, Excited about the broadcast. Uh, Hopefully this will be a constructive investment of your Monday evening. Uh, Thank anyone who has tuned in to this broadcast. Uh, This is a familiar topic. Might even remind you of Danielle McGuire's visit uh, at the dark end of the street about the long legacy of black females being raped by white men. And the other side of the story with the lynchings. I uh, remember the program with uh, Monty Acres, Monty Akers, uh Flames After Midnight, uh, early 20th century Texas. Uh, black male uh, is accused of raping, murdering white woman. They end up burning down a whole town. Common theme uh, with the system of racism. Uh, Our guest for the program. Excellent book. Uh, Again, addressing this topic. uh, Our guest, uh, she's a graduate of Yale. Uh, She wrote the book, The Central Park Five, A Chronicle of a City Wilding. Excellent investigation of what happened in August, excuse me, April. April 1989, uh, five non-white males uh, accused, ultimately convicted, of assaulting, raping a white female. Very much looking to get her information. She's actually working on a documentary film on this same subject. Real pleasure to have her joining us for the evening. Our guest, uh, Miss Sarah Burns. Uh, Miss Burns, are you with us? Hi. Greetings, greetings. Good to hear from you. Um, glad to be thank here. you so much for sharing. For sure, we're glad to have you. Um, for our guests, or excuse me, for our listeners, uh, folks out there who might not have read the book, uh, this might be their first time being introduced to your work. Uh, what background information do you think they should know about you before we get started?
4: Uh, Well, I, as you said, I went to Yale um, as an undergrad and became interested in this case while I was spending a summer working for um, some civil rights lawyers who are involved in the civil suit. These young men are now suing the city for their wrongful convictions. And so I became interested in the case and wrote my undergraduate thesis about it and just was so taken by it that I, I kind of couldn't stop. And so I ended up continuing and writing a book about it, and now I'm working on a documentary film um, on the same subject as well.
3: I want to hop right to it. Um, I think a lot of our, our listeners, we have a lot of folks who are in the New York area who listen in, and I'm sure they remember this case, or if they're a little bit younger, they've heard about it. we uh, real pleasure to uh, get more details. Um, this program, The Cow's context of white supremacy, uh, I have unfortunately concluded uh, that we are in a global system of racism. I use those two terms, racism and white supremacy, as synonyms. use the same definition for both terms. Uh, The definition I use for racism and white supremacy is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, Do you believe that such a system exists and do you think that's an accurate definition?
4: Wow, that's really interesting. You know, I don't know. I think the interesting thing in this case um, is something, you know, the the definition that you've just given here suggests something that is very much um, sort of stated, spoken, and and clear. Um, And I think that it can be murkier than that sometimes. That's not to say, I mean, I think racism is a, huge problem, obviously, and certainly there are plenty of people who probably do fall under this definition, um, but I'm sort of interested in the, at least in this case, in some of the racism that is more kind of beneath the surface and pervasive in in a different way, I would say.
3: Okay. Okay. And I I definitely want to get to the details of that because I think that's very important. But just with regards to context, um, I think think it's important for especially non-white people to understand why these sorts of things happen, the Central Park uh, rape case and what Dr. King was fighting against, I believe, is part of a global power system uh, where you have white people who are dedicated to this consciously, unconsciously dedicated to the maintenance of power and domination over non-white people in all areas of people activity. Do you, and if you don't agree, that's fine, but do you think that's accurate?
4: That that exists? Yes, ma'am. I mean, I, I certainly, I certainly think that there are probably people who are that consciously in intending to be racist, but I also think that there's a degree of racism that is uh, probably much more common that is this sort of unspoken understood form you know
5: hmm. okay, okay.
3: Uh, I would just listeners keep in mind my view that I do think this is a, a global system this is not accidental this is the sort of thing what happened in the case we're about to discuss in my view this is the sort of thing that one can expect as long as the system of racism white supremacy exists um, I want to read a little bit from the preface uh, and then ask, uh, ask my question. Uh, this is uh, page nine, the preface of your book, uh, The Central Park Five. Uh, and you write, the media coverage was certainly not the only reason these teenagers were wrongly convicted. The police, the prosecutors, and the defense lawyers all played a role. But this was not a case of rogue detectives beating confessions out of suspects or of the police and prosecutors conspiring to frame individuals they knew to be innocent. If that were so, we could blame it all on those bad seeds and move on. Instead, this case exposes The deeply ingrained racism that still exists in our society. It shows us who and what we fear and how easy it is for us to believe the sensational stories we hear from the media, who often fail to apply the skepticism their profession demands when competition drives them to sell newspapers or attract more viewers. The false narrative disseminated by the police and the media was swallowed whole by the public because it conformed to the assumptions and fears of the city and the country. Everyone, and you have that in italics, everyone bought the story. But the fact that so many continue to promote this narrative tells us that even though we live, as some like to say, in a post-racial society the racism that fueled the original rush to judgment persists and that we have not evolved enough from those days when even the suggestion that a black man had raped a white woman could lead to a lynching what was your purpose for writing this book Ms Burns
4: well, I was first captured by the stories of these young men, and I, when I met them and, and got to know them, um, it, I would say the, the main purpose was really to try to humanize them and tell their story in a way that had not happened before. I mean, they had been so dehumanized by the media coverage in this case called savages and animals, effectively, um, and I... I wanted to tell this story, and I wanted to try to understand how something like this could happen, and, and you know, in the hopes that by by trying to understand and explain how it happens, we could try to learn a little bit about how to prevent it from happening in the future.
5: Hmm. Okay,
3: um, one of the things that I thought very important in the book, you take quite a bit of time to provide context for the april 1989 rape Uh, you kind of give background information about willie horton uh, and how uh, the commercial uh, that george bush the first ran how that contributed to him winning the presidential election in 1988 Uh, you spend a lot of time locally uh, things that were happening in new york uh, the rape case with tawana brawley uh, the howard beach incident Um, Michael Smith, Eleanor Bumpers, a lot of the racial incidents, really incidents of racism, white supremacy um, that were happening in the greater New York area. Um, I wanted you to comment on both local local context, things that were happening in New York around this time in the late and mid 80s um, that influenced this case, as well as the broader national context of racism, white supremacy. And I just want to set this up. Uh, with a clip. Um, I guess he might recognize it, might not, but there's a big connection. I want to set that question up with this quick clip.
6: Much of the anger and resentment directed at Jack Johnson throughout his life would be caused by what one African-American writer called his unforgivable blackness. Between 1901 and 1910, 846 americans were lynched in the united states 754 of them were african americans some murdered merely because someone had whispered that they had been too familiar with white women
3: from the fantastic documentary film unforgivable blackness uh, directed by ken burns co-produced by Ken Burns, who is also the father of our guest today. Can you talk about the local historical context around this case?
4: Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great quote, um, to illustrate exactly the point of this. I think that, um, in this case, you know, we have, it's impossible not to think back to an era when lynching was so common. Um, and, you know that's because the way that people reacted to this story really reflected a sort of more modern version of the same instinct. I think um, that you see in the in the early 20th century and and even earlier um, in those cases, which as, as the narration there says, you know, just even the idea of a, of a rape of this nature um, perpetrated by a black man on a white woman is so incendiary that it continues to bring up these same sort of instincts. I mean, you know, in the Central Park Jogger case, people, you know, there are all these interviews. We saw a lot of kind of man on the street interviews of people talking about how we need to bring back the death penalty and, uh, uh, I mean, Pat Buchanan wrote a column in the New York Post talking about um, how they should be, you know, horsewhipped and beaten and Hung in Central Park I mean this is 1989 and we're getting this kind of language um, and so there is something about this that really upset people and I think that you have to understand the context of, of the time in order to understand why people had reactions like that I mean this case does not happen in a vacuum as you mentioned um, it came at the end of a decade where there were some many crimes uh, that that served to really increase racial tension in New York City in particular, though uh, things like that were happening across the country, but New York especially had these series of incidents, many of which were, as you said, and often, this is often coming from the police too, but white attacks on blacks. So in Howard Beach, in Bensonhurst, which is actually a little bit after this case, um, you get you know, mobs of white teenagers uh, attacking black men who sort of wander into the wrong neighborhood, um, and so that's, that's a part of the setup for this. Um, but you also, I think, have to look, look back much further and, and consider this history of, of lynching and even before. I mean, why, why were whites trying to come up with these reasons to justify lynching, which is actually has nothing to do with rape, it has to do with econo- continued economic oppression, right? It's a new form of slavery. That's what lynching is. Um, and so that – the sort of underlying purpose of that continues.
3: Context of white supremacy. Um, I would definitely encourage uh, folks, uh, if you read this book and other other reports, books on this topic, the Central Park rape case, definitely the local context, extremely important, the, the rape case with Tawana Brawley. Um, the Howard Beach incident a little bit afterwards, um, just what happened certainly with uh, Bernard Goetz, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, a uh, white male uh, on a subway train, and he thought he was going to be accosted by these uh, black males. He ends up shooting them. Uh, he is paraded in the newspaper and media as a vigilante and right on the status for justice, and we're not going to take it anymore. Um, a lot of important cases around this incident. Um, you talk about how easily this fits into the historical pattern. Jack Johnson, the Scottsboro Boys, Emmett Till, a uh, black person has violated a white woman. Bang, easily for white people, really everyone, white people, not even a lot of black people buying into this. Oh, my God, this is terrible. We can't believe they did this. The language that was used to dehumanize them, uh, you put one of the terms in the title of your book. Wilding, Uh, Can you talk Mm -hmm. about this language and how this impacted what happened in this case?
4: Sure, yeah. Well, wilding is especially uh, associated with this case. In fact, it really was the the first time that word was used broadly in the media. Um, And, you know, it has been since, but this case in some ways sort of invented that word in, in the way that it's used. Um, and right away the headlines were screaming wilding. That was the, the way that their activities were described. These kids in the park were out wilding. And the, the media all said that it, it was the kids themselves who had described their own activities as wilding. Um, but the actual origin of it is less clear. Um, the press got that information from the police uh, who who were the ones who leaked everything about the case at the beginning. So all of the information in the press is coming from the police, um, which is obviously a very one-sided version of things. And we're wilding sort of foremost among those pieces of information. And uh, there are a few different stories about how that could have uh, come to be. One was that some of the kids, sort of before they knew what kind of trouble they were in, having not actually committed this crime, they weren't quite aware of how, how deeply they were in trouble. Um, had been singing the song "Wild Thing" by Tom Loke at some point after their arrests, um, and that the police misunderstood that as wilding. But i but the guys that I've talked to don't have any recollection of that happening, and so it's not clear to me that that's even the real story. Um, but they all say that they'd never heard this word before, and it didn't mean anything to them. Um, so you know, it was actually really interesting when I talked to Corey Wise at first, one of the five. He said that. Uh, And I asked him about the word "wilding" and and what he thought about it and where it had come from. And he said that it it was sort of ironic because it was this word that was that was used to supposedly describe what these guys had been doing, when in fact it's what had been done to them. And that sort of that word hung over his head the entire time he was being tried and in prison. and, um, And that really is sort of the inspiration for. The subtitle of the book, as you say, is that this word, um, I think it's important to kind of turn it around so that, you know, this is how they were described, but in fact, it's a good description of what happened to them.
3: Exactly. I I could not agree more. Uh, And really going back to what I said about the system of white supremacy, guaranteed to produce this, uh, especially if you – pull out and don't look at this in isolation uh you can, you can fast forward to what happened with uh tiger woods um just sad illustrate you can get her father's uh documentary film unforgivable blackness and just see the pattern it's glaring to be expected conduct um, i wanted to give listeners a little idea um, so they can hear the language that was used to describe these young non-white males Uh, At the time, uh, you have a piece uh, in your book. This is on page 85. This is from Pete Hamill. Uh, uh, You write respected columnist for the Post. Uh, He writes, race is part of this demented equation, but as usual, when we are talking about race, we are really talking about class. These kids came into Central Park from the north on Wednesday evening, and according to the cops, They had a loose plan of battle to go wilding against the rich. The details didn't matter because there was no script, but they were coming downtown from a world of crack, welfare, guns, knives, indifference, and ignorance. They were coming from a land with no fathers. They were coming from schools where cops must guard the doors. They were coming from the anarchic province of the poor. Nothing is a real defense in this sick world in which we now all live. Everybody is vulnerable, the black poor most vulnerable of all. It is no consolation to say that we've seen this coming from the mid-60s and nobody did anything serious to stop it. Now, the fierce and terrible future is here. You reap what you sow. Can you talk about how, and I mean major articles, headline articles coming out daily for weeks on end about this case, national coverage in People magazine with this sort of language, I mean, you've got almost every common stereotype about black people in this one paragraph, crack, welfare, guns, mm-hmm. knives, no fi I mean, blah, blah,
7: blah, blah. can you talk
3: about the impact that this has on people both consciously and subconsciously?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, and that's, that's a great example of one of these things where, you know, he's, he's talking about it almost in, in a sense of trying to understand how this happened, but what people forget and, and don't even look at is the fact that, obviously, these are stereotypes. These th- these descriptions don't apply to these kids um, who came from, you know, a variety of backgrounds but not, nothing like what he's describing there. And that those, those words that he uses do, I think, have a powerful effect. And, and I mean, I argue in the book that it's um, – uh, and sometimes an indirect effect, you know, as I said, as you you read from that section in the prologue that, you know, I don't think this is as simple as, you know, a couple of rogue uh, racist cops framing people they know who are innocent. It's this sort of pervasive sense of... Um, everyone going along with this narrative that's sort of concocted by the police and disseminated through the media and it's things like this not just these sort of the specifics that the police put out there but people like Pete Hamill and not just Pete Hamill but many many columnists um, I mean Bob Herbert uh, wrote some terrible things about them um, in his column as well but that these things, I think, do have an effect, a, a sort of broad effect, right? So, at, so many people read these things, take them in, and sort of um, take them on, begin to believe them. They're uh, so widely believed in that sense. And it, it's things like this that make it easy for people to assume that these kids did it and continue to believe that even when the evidence points otherwise, when the DNA evidence comes back and it's negative, you know? That seems like an obvious moment to to question this story, but no one really does. And to me, that is where this kind of language that you just read from from Pete Hamill and others, I think, begins to really be this kind of insidious problem, which is that people believe that and then it becomes true for them. And so they they will go along with this story no matter what because it makes sense to them.
3: I, I would just throw in this is my one cent. It makes sense under a system of white supremacy. It fits. It fits the tired, redundant logic of how racist think programs everyone, white and non-white people, to see the world. The dangerous black rapists are going to do something to the white. It's in birth of a nation. I mean, it is it is ubiquitous in the system. Um, the victims, five victims in this case, make sure I get name everyone, Antron, McCray, excuse me, these are, they're the victims and they would be considered uh victims. They, con-
4: they are certainly victims, yeah.
3: Um, the, the non-white victims in this case who were arrested and convicted wrongfully, uh, Antron McCray, Kevin Richardson, Corey Wise, Yusuf Salaam and Raymond Santana, uh, the five who were falsely arrested, convicted, later uh, had those convictions vacated. Um, I want to talk a bit about their treatment by enforcement officers, uh, just based on the research that you did around these uh, confessions and the attitude that the enforcement officers, uh, just based on your research, how you think they were treated and what happened around the confessions that were made.
4: Sure. Well, I think you know, as, I, as as you read from that introduction before, you know, it's not just as simple as having confessions beat out of them. And so, what happens in those interrogation rooms is is much more complicated than that. Um, but I think it's it's part of a system that is not uncommon. The way that these interrogations were taken, um, and we know that they the these strategies for extracting confessions can and do lead to false confessions, as they did in this case. Um, some of the kids, I mean Kevin Richardson in particular, when he was arrested, he was um, he was leaving the park and was chased by the police, who tackled him and hit him across the face. The the police officer hit him across the face with his helmet, I believe, and he the resulting sort of scratch bruise on his face was actually used in the interrogation as a way to try to get him to confess because they. They said, you know, what? Where did that scratch come from? And he said, well, you know, your this this is this is how he describes it. He says, well, you know, one of your other one of your fellow officers hit me, and they they acted like they didn't believe him and that it wasn't possible and that they were gonna you know get him for lying about that. And so they eventually convinced him that he had to say that uh, he got the scratch from the female jogger, um, even though it had actually come from the police. But in general, the tactics that were used are, in large part, the legal standard accepted practices um, of interrogators. And, you know, I mean, there's there's a book on this. You can read the book. It is the, the manual for how interrogations happen. And a, a lot of these interrogations sort of followed that rule. And I think that the places where they strayed from that and, and pushed beyond that, which I certainly believe that they did, came in the form of, in some cases, separating these kids who were, for the most part, under 16 and therefore should have had parents present at all times, um, that they use sort of trickery to kind of keep the parents out of the rooms. Even though, in theory, they had invited a guardian to be present, they would ask them to leave and then continue the questioning and stuff like that. Um, that's one way. Um, and then also, I think the, the perhaps the most important way was that they – made promises and that's the one of the only things you can't do is make indirect direct or indirect implied promises or threats and what they told them was if you tell us what we want to hear you can go home and all of these guys report hearing that same thing and and believing it at that point after many many hours of interrogation they believed it and so they thought naively uh, that By giving a statement, they would be able to go home, and that is something that police are not allowed to do, and they denied having done it when they testified, but that is what happened.
3: Hmm. Wow. Um, I hope people um, study, particularly if you listen to this program, Speaking with enforcement officers, I cannot recommend enough. uh, If you are arrested, do not talk. Um, The police enforcement officers, they are not your friends. They are not there to be buddies with you. They are about making arrests and convictions. Just be quiet. Um, I mean, just hindsight of these, at the time, these victims, these five non-white males, if they had just known that, uh, just be quiet. Be quiet until your parents get there. And
8: ask for a
4: lawyer. Ask for a lawyer, always ask for a lawyer. I mean, that's one of those things. You know, these kids were read their Miranda rights, um, but those rights are read with a sort of shrug and a wink, and the implication is that if you take advantage of those rights, you will seem guilty. And so they present it like, well, you know, we, we believe you're a good kid and we think you can be a witness and go home if you just tell us what you saw. And, you know, after 12 hours with no sleep and no food, that suddenly sounds appealing and suddenly you've got someone who seems like they're in your corner and they're offering you something uh, and it's not true but you know yes absolutely if they had known that if they'd been less naive about the system and you know in many cases their parents were there and were equally naive these were not kids who'd been arrested before um, and so they didn't they didn't know that
5: just
3: based on what you've seen the research if these five victims, if they had said nothing, um, if they had just stayed quiet, do you think they would have been convicted?
4: Absolutely not. There were other, there were many other kids in the park, right? These five were part of a larger group of around 30 kids who were running around sort of causing trouble in the park that night, um, but had none of them had anything to do with the rape of the jogger. And many of those other kids were also interrogated. And, you know, people often ask me, why did they focus on these five? And, and the answer is really they didn't. They used these same techniques on many of these kids. Um, the difference was that these five were more vulnerable, and they were the ones who falsely confessed. And the other kids who said, I'm not saying anything about the jogger. I didn't see a jogger. I don't know what you're talking about. Those kids went home. Or the kids whose parents came and said, don't say another word, we're getting a lawyer, those kids went home.
3: Be quiet, don't talk, get a lawyer, know when to be quiet, definitely. Um, I wanted to, and I did want to ask you about this, um, because you you just referenced uh, the victims at the time as kids and this uh, this is on page 61 and 62 of the book, uh, where you are talking about the defendants. Uh, and you write that each cried the simple des- desire to go home as a motivating factor in his confession. After the grueling interrogation, the hours without food, the terrifying encounters with those playing bad cops, the bone-weary fatigue they all felt, and for some, the complicated signals they were getting from their own parents and guardians, These young men wanted a respite to leave the interrogation room and to seek the shelter and protection of their families in a familiar setting. The detectives implied, suggested, or stated that they could be witnesses or that if they told the truth, then they could go home. Despite the restriction on implied promises, desperate for a way out, the naive teenagers relented and gave the detectives exactly what they wanted. Uh, I also wanted to throw in as well, one of the victim's parents um, unfortunately counseled uh, his child to go ahead and just agree with the enforcement officers um, so that, you know, this would help expedite things, which turned out not to work in his favor at all. Um, You a few times in the book reference the defendants as young men and it just stood out to me, man, these are not men. These are children, kids, children. as you said, teenagers, adolescents. These are not men. Uh, just the yeah. incorrectness. And, I mean, people clamored at the time, But these are adults. They're going to be tried as adults. They're not juveniles. The crime is not juvenile. I think you mentioned some of the signs and what have you, that rape is not minor. Um, can you mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit?
8: Yeah, I think it was
4: it was really forgotten in the media coverage how young they were. I mean, they were 14, 15 and 16 years old and um incredibly naive. I mean, that is so young as you said they're they were children. Um and they I, I think the way that the story was covered, that was often forgotten. And so um just in the way that that the papers really use the word alleged, which, you know, they should do. And, of course, they didn't. They also didn't really discuss how young they were. And so I think that was often forgotten, and there was a sense that they were these sort of menacing thugs. That was the way that they were portrayed, um, you know, which which comes down to the way they're depicted, too, just graphically. I mean, they're you know, they, they use these photos taken at the perp walks, you know, and they shoot them up at this high angle looking up at them as they sort of contort their faces. And, you know, it's such a... Um, inaccurate description of, of who they were then, these little children who were terrified of their surroundings and, and totally naive about what was going on.
3: Wow. Uh, I was, you were describing the, uh, I guess, the architecture of the photographs and, and presenting these images of these children as uh, gruesome menaces. They were described as urban terrorists. Uh, in one of the news publications. Um, I guess if I could make that, that one request in the documentary film, uh, at least the parts where you're talking or if you have narrative, if we could not reference them. Even young men, I think, is not, it's just not accurate. These are ch- kids, as you said. Is that one request we can make for the documentary?
4: <laughs> well, um, we actually don't have any narration in this documentary, believe it or not. Um, okay. It's a little, a little different. So um, it's, it's really them telling their own story.
3: Wow, okay. So you actually get yeah. to hear from the five uh, males? In this, yes. In the back? Yeah. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. All five of them. Definitely will be looking forward to that. Um, well, I want to also make sure I give out the number, in case folks are listening in. If you all have questions, you'd like to ask uh, Ms. Sarah Burns the number, 760-569-7676, and the code is 564- 943 pound. Uh, If you have a question, just press star six. Those of you on the talk shoe line, just press star eight if you have a question. Um, I wanted to read, I thought this was, um, I'll just read and and then get your comments. This is from page 89, uh, the Central Park Five. Uh, You write that another discussion was playing out in feminist circles where some voices were calling for the rape to be seen as a crime against women and not to be defined in racial terms. In one of the few serious considerations of this perspective, the Village Voice dedicated a special section to the case on May 9th and included five pieces by women to highlight their perspective in the discussion. One article noted that we live in a pro-rape culture. This is not an issue of race, but of gender. Like others, the author pointed out that there is much less tolerance for racism than sexism in the black community. Another article in that Village Voice issue expressed one woman's complicated reaction as an African-American. She felt torn between her race and her gender. To badmouth the youths means taking a chance that my language might be used against me, against blacks. If I remain silent or hem and haw about the outrage against women, then again I am in danger. The feeling that a choice had to be made in how to define this terrible crime ignored a central issue. Of course, rape is a crime against women, and combating rape and the ways that our society deals with it has everything to do with changing cultural attitudes about women. And yet, this particular case had everything to do with race. I would have said racism, but your thoughts on that passage, uh, Sarah Burns?
4: yeah well, I think I mean, I think it's totally valid to have a discussion about what what rape means in terms of our culture and our our attitudes towards women and and all of the, I mean, you know what's been said there. I think that's that's totally valid, but I don't think that those discussions are mutually exclusive. Um, you know it, it's both. And so um, I think it's uh, uh, sort of unfortunate that you know there there were also protests outside the courtroom during the trials about um, how, you know, we needed to look at this, you know, make this only about the victim and only about, you know, how how that had happened and who she was and that kind of thing. It's like, this is a valid point also, but it's not the only point. Um, and so I think it's just really important to, to consider both of these perspectives. But in this particular case, the way that it was handled, I think, had everything to do with the racism, as you say. and. Um, certainly in in the ultimate outcome of it, I think, uh, had everything to do with racism.
2: Uh,
3: I would even – I I think it's valid, but in a way, I would have strong challenges for that because even this this Village Voice piece, which is very important, addressing the issue of rape, uh, and I would agree this is definitely a pro-rape culture, uh, but I would point to the fact that The white supremacy that dominates every aspect of this Central Park rape case, the fact that this is what allowed, this is what prompted this piece to come out, and not, as you point out, there were tons of rapes uh, happening. Uh, You point out some of the more grisly incidents of a female being raped and thrown off a building, Uh, and there was no Mm -hmm. public outroar about this. I think this was a black female. Uh, There was no public uproar about this the village voice didn't do a major piece on this being a pro-rape right. culture in response to a black female being raped right uh, i don't even think that came out recently with uh nafi diallo and her case against dominic strauss kahn that you know hey this is a pro-rape culture and i don't think all of that happened then
5: either um your, absolutely your and,
4: and that's why this case is all you know you you have to look at this through the lens of racism because it would not have gotten the coverage or attention that it did if not for the various races of the alleged perpetrators and the victim. It simply wouldn't have, and, and, and that's the proof. I mean, if you have any question about that, the fact that, you know, a black woman was raped and thrown off of a, a roof um, just, I think, two, about two weeks later, and it, you know, it was a, a inside-the-fold headline um, one, on one day. Uh, that tells you a lot about why people are paying attention to this case.
3: Wow, I want to uh, I want to throw out a quiz, pop quiz for Sarah Burns. Um, this was a super important point that you made in the book, uh, and I really want you to spend some time. But I want to see if you can pick it out. This is from the uh, NPR. They did a story on your book, um, not too, just a few months back, and this is what they say. Uh, they write. Uh, Central Park 5, a chronicle of a city wilding, is not about the heartbreaking assault and subsequent heroic recovery of Patricia Maleen, a white 28 year old victim of the notorious crime. It is the story of the five African American teens who were convicted of her rape. Uh, what is incorrect in the sentence I just read? What
4: is incorrect? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, the, the fact that they were all described as African American.
3: A plus. I was certain. Why is that such an important aspect? Uh, do you think in this
5: case?
4: Well, because it, it was also forgotten in the coverage of this case. So um, Raymond Santana, uh, one of the five, is uh, of Puerto Rican descent, um, and it was they were often sort of lumped together as black in this this. In order, in some ways, I think, in order to be able to apply those stereotypes that Pete Hamill wrote of, um, sort of uniformly to this group, um, and to be able to kind of see them as just all the same. I mean, there was no, you know, there was some coverage that talked a little bit about where they came from and who they were, but it was so, it was such a blip relative to the to the rest of the coverage, um, and it often got some of those details wrong anyway. Um, that it it was easy to just kind of lump them together and and put them aside as this thing that people thought they knew who they were and where they came from.
3: Again, Again, in my opinion, this just, it speaks to that racist thing. As I said, frequently the default, unfortunately, and I think it's worldwide. The default is white supremacy. And I think it shows uh, I think people have used the term the social construct, but I think it emphasizes, hey, in this system, you can easily get reclassified as black, particularly anything uh, that fits with standard racist stereotypes against black people, easily just be lumped in as another black person. Um, just I, You touched on it on the book on page 106. Um, I think the sentence to you, right, that Reynolds and his partner listening to the same radio broadcast together in the same vehicle. Mm-hmm. Remember, different descriptions of the perpetrators suggest just how interchangeable those racial descriptions had become. <clears throat> Very important point, I thought. Um, just in, ter- in my opinion, just in terms of the overwhelmingness of how much racism influenced what happened in this case, and obviously influencing an incorrect judgment convicting these five males, uh, the actual person who raped uh, Miss Melia I hope I'm saying her name correctly, uh, Matias Reyes, um, serial rapist, uh, had been in operation in the area where the Central Park Rape took place, um, you write, in my opinion, pretty strongly uh, suggesting that someone should have picked up the connection that, hey, maybe this Reyes guy should be a suspect uh, in the Central Park rape case. Can you talk about how he was just totally missed uh, in all the furor about these five non white males?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he uh, raped a woman in Central Park just two days before he raped the Central Park jogger. Um, and that, that attack was sort of interrupted. And so it wasn't, um, it didn't have quite the same brutal end. Um, but he did sexually assault a woman not far from the spot in the park. And that victim was able to give a description to a detective about her assailant that described the stitches that he had on his chin, fresh stitches. And, the detective was able to go to local hospitals and found that a young man that fit the description who had these stitches on his chin um, and, and found his name, Matthias Reyes. Um, and that was never followed up. Um, but even if even if that one wasn't enough for them to try to to try to follow, um, you would then think that after the Central Park jogger rape, which was going to get headlines, sort of, regardless of who the uh, alleged perpetrators were. Um, that they could have found this guy if they hadn't been so blinded by their by, by how sure they were that these kids had done it. They could have found him. It would not have been difficult. They had his name in the file, um, and you know they could have not only prevented these kids from spending their adolescences in prison, but they also could have prevented the crimes that he committed after he raped the Central Park jogger, which are horrific and included stabbing to death, raping and then stabbing to death a pregnant woman with her children uh, in the next room. So, I mean, tragedy on top of tragedy in this case, is, in this case, uh, you know, is that these crimes could have been prevented if they had done, done proper police work here.
3: I want to just make two statements, and, and you can let me know if I'm being truthful. Uh, I would say dedication to white supremacy is responsible for these five non white males spending unnecessary time uh, behind bars, and uh, Matias Reyes being allowed to roam free and continue raping, even murdering other victims. Dedication of racism white supremacy is that an accurate statement based on your research
4: well sure i mean you know that that's sort of your definition and and i think that's that's certainly an interesting one um i don't know if i would have explained it exactly the same way but i think what you're getting at is absolutely true which is that the i think what allowed that to happen what kept people from finding matias reyes or or wondering if they'd maybe had the wrong guys um the, the the thing that Prevented them from doing that was a kind of tunnel vision that's inspired by racism, which is that it was so easy for people to believe that these kids, children, 14 and 15 years old, had committed this horrific crime um, and, and it made it possible for them to ignore all of the evidence that pointed elsewhere. Um, the fact that the forensics didn't match, that there was no blood on any of their clothes, even though she had effectively bled out, Um, the fact that the DNA didn't match. There was DNA, and it didn't match. I mean, these are signals that they should have looked elsewhere. And you would hope that any decent prosecutor or detective would have had second thoughts about that. And, And I believe that they didn't, um, or at least didn't admit to having second thoughts, um, in part because they, it because of these stereotypes that we were talking about before, and that it was very easy for them to believe they were so sure that these kids had done it because it fit some kind of profile that they believed.
3: Context of white supremacy. Uh, I do see a hand on the switchboard. The person that called in uh, M1. M one on the talk sheet line. Did you have a question? Oh where can you turn your radio down if you're listening? M1, did you have a question for Sarah Burns?
6: Oh uh, yes. Yes I do. Uh good evening all. I living here in New York and I can honestly say being one of the few supporters of those young men even back in nineteen eighty nine. While I was happy the convictions were overturned, it really didn't bring me any joy simply because they should not have had to go through this. Uh, two questions. Oh, one, Ms. Burns, I'm sure as you know, they're, they're temp- they are trying to uh, sue for compensatory damages and the city is holding it up. Knowing that these young men cannot get a job, even though their records are supposedly clean, with the proceeds of this book, are you making any donations to these young men? Particularly since, as I said, no one is giving them work and the city is stalling. The uh, civil trial.
4: Uh, do you want me to go ahead? Sorry, I thought you said you had two questions.
6: Okay, and second one, the uh, I recently saw an interview. Well, not recently, some time ago. There's an interview with Ms. Neely herself, and she was asked about it. She stated she has no memory of this attack. However, she does believe that because they express details about the crime, that they are somehow, that maybe they were somehow in cahoots with uh, Matthias Reyes. Now, To me, you may not agree with me that I believe she was being racist because even if if you don't, even if a person doesn't have a memory of the attack, we know now those young men didn't do it. So why would she continue to believe the narrative that they somehow have a part in this and not help them get some sort of economic justice.
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, to your to your first point, um, <laughs> I haven't sold enough copies of the book for there to be any proceeds. <laughs> so, I guess that's sort of moot. <laughs> um, but uh, hopefully, hopefully someday I will, and um, and then you know, um, I guess we'll see then. But uh, you know. Um, Part of, actually, also to that point, um, despite the challenges, and as you mentioned, the civil suit um, is, has dragged out. They filed the civil suit in 2003, and it is as yet unresolved, and as you correctly said, the city is doing everything in their power to, to stall that suit, um, but they uh, are suing for many tens of millions of dollars, and it seems that the city has no intention of settling, um, but they are... Likely to go to trial in this calendar year, despite all of those delays, um, there are only so many that the city will be able to get away with before the judge demands a trial. Hopefully sooner rather than later, um, and I, I hope and expect that they will recover damages that way, um, which, uh, you know, as you said, can, you know, is, is hugely important for them. They they are now able, for the most part, to get jobs, though it's certainly not been easy for them. Um, and even now with the convictions vacated, uh, you know, having, having that, that gap on your resume is not exactly ideal. And so their, their paths to kind of regain their lives has been, have been um, extraordinarily difficult. And, and none of them are the same, certainly, um, from where they would have been before. Um, to your second question about Tricia Miley, um, I think it's a really complicated thing, and I, I don't know, honestly, what her, her perspective on this is. Um, I contacted her for the book and, and hoped that she would talk to me, but um, she politely declined. Um, my guess, my sense of things, is that um, she's not the only one who has a suspicion that they might have had something to do with it. Um, there are actually quite a few people who, in, in much stronger language uh, prosecutors and police, involved in the case originally. Um, and even the police department in a more official capacity, uh, who, they did a, their own review of the case that effectively concluded that the five had actually done something to the Central Park jogger, if not the, the bulk of her attack. Um, there are quite a few people out there who still make the argument that they had something to do with this. Um, despite, as you said, the clear evidence uh, of their innocence. And so I think that's out there, and um, why Trisha Miley maybe believes that, I mean, she's made sort of comments uh, uh, that, that do suggest that in a couple of cases. Um, I really don't know. I only wonder if maybe the, the people who were sort of her um, protectors, you know, I mean, who, who were her advocates in that setting, you, still have some, uh, you know, she still sort of values their opinions, and they're the ones who are out there saying that these kids remain guilty in their minds, um, which I think is really another tragedy.
6: Okay, so, so, you, so you don't believe that she is, is being racist in her assumption that, that it's being forced upon her? Because I
5: mean, well, no, if she I don't came think out and supported these her. young
6: men, if she came out and supported these young men. Believe me, it the suit they would have would, would, would proceed like wildfire. Well, but, I don't know.
4: I mean, I, I think I, 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 that may be true, but I, I, I actually think that the resistance from within the city is much more powerful than that. I'm not sure how much help she could be. That said, I I don't think she's being forced to say anything. Certainly not that. And I really don't know. But um, it's certainly possible that her assumptions. I mean, you know, look, I, I can't say anything bad about this woman. She survived amazingly. Survived a absolutely horrific attack. Um, and, and, and made a really amazing recovery, and for the most part has chosen not to talk about this. She, she speaks about her recovery um, as sort of the survivor of a traumatic brain injury and how she came back from, from these injuries. I mean, she was as close to being dead as you can be and survive. Um, and, you know, I have no idea what that's done to her um, psychologically and how complicated that is, and I, I wouldn't even begin to speak about that.
6: All right, thank you. Someone else
5: can continue if they want to. All right.
3: Thank you for the question, sir. Uh, context of white supremacy, again, if you're on the talk shoe line and you have questions, it's star eight. If you're on the 760 number, it's star six if you have questions, star six if you're on the 760 area code. Um, again, just to give some of the context, because I think I think it's important to kind of keep in mind the things that were happening uh, during the trial, around the time of the trial. Uh, this is on page 129 from your book, Chapter 5. Uh, on the evening of August 23, 1989, just four months after the rape in Central Park, another racially charged incident added to what seemed like a growing pattern in New York City four black teenagers went to the mostly Italian neighborhood of Bensonhurst in Brooklyn to look at a 1982 Pontiac that had been advertised for sale. A group of white teenagers from the neighborhood were out with baseball bats awaiting the arrival of some other black kids who were rumored to be coming for the birthday party of a girl from the neighborhood. When the four young men walked past, the group surrounded them. Someone had a gun. One of the four 16-year-old Yusuf Hawkins was shot twice in the chest and was dead before he reached the hospital. Demonstrators organized by Al Sharpton walked the streets of Bensonhurst in protest. Local residents turned out to taunt and jeer them, hurling racial epithets. Some yelled, niggers go home. We don't want you here. And even James Earl Ray the name of the assassin who killed Martin Luther King Jr. Others took up a chant, Central Park, Central Park, in reference to the Jogger case. Some, some held up watermelons. I just, I want to read that last sentence one more time. Some held up watermelons. Sharpton's protesters retorted by chanting, Howard Beach, Howard Beach, The name of Tawana Brawley, the black teenager who had falsely alleged that several white men had raped her in her upstate New York town, was also yelled during the confrontation. These terrible crimes and incidents, each of which had ratcheted up racial tensions in the city, were so inextricably linked in the minds of New Yorkers that one could not occur without everyone instantly thinking of those that had come before. Page one twenty nine. Uh, did you want to share any thoughts on that page, uh, Sarah Burns?
4: Well, I, I think that's a really important part of understanding this context, and just about everyone that I talked to about this case um, raised some of these other these other stories, these other incidents um, and attacks. And when, and I think when people think about the Central Park jogger case, they very often think about these. These stories, also Bernard Getz, which, is, which I discussed earlier in the book, um, is another one where, uh, you know, it, it's part of people's sort of memory of this time, and, and it's almost like they're all pieces in a puzzle that, that help you understand this, this decade. Um, so I think it's really important to understand what had come before um, in terms of how people dealt with this case.
3: You mentioned uh, the Tawana Brawley case uh, and some of the – we got some of the same people involved, Al Sharpton, Alden Maddox. Um, at least from what I read, it seems like you seem pretty certain Tawana Brawley did not uh, or was not raped by the individuals that she falsely accused these folks. Is that accurate?
4: Well, I mean, that, that seemed to be the sort of in, – in I mean, you know, I, I am not an expert in that case. So from what I have read and understood about it, um, that was sort of the conclusion of of the system. But you know, I I know that there are, that there are people who um, take the position that that her entire story was true. Um, my understanding is that there are some some problems with that story, um, but I don't I don't know exactly what happened. So,
3: hmm. just understanding you're not an, an expert on that case, but I mean just the bit that you know. Uh, you could not have a more diametrically opposed response with regards to an accusation of rape, with regards mm-hmm. to how white people responded to Tawana Brawley's accusation? Absolutely. Okay.
5: Wow.
4: Right. I mean, you know, in this case, the the name of the victim um, was withheld by the press uh, until she decided, until Tricia Miley decided to come forward and tell her own story in a book um, that I believe was published in 2003. So um, that alone is a, is a huge difference here. Um, you know, Tawana Braley, in, in her case, was, um, you know, a, a very public figure relative to that story. And so um, that alone is very different
3: that pattern i can pick out again uh, where if it's a black female and she's accusing a white man of having raped her the pattern of the female's name being given i see that also with the case with uh napi uh mm-hmm. in dsk where her name uh becomes infamous they don't they don't in fact the french press they never uh withheld the name they were saying her name from day one and even some right. white people in the french media came out and said wow this is a major deviation from the way that we normally handle rape cases, uh, I, dedication, I would say, to white supremacy. Um, person that called in on the talk you line, I'll get your question first, and then the free HD line. person that called in from New York, did you have a question for Sarah Burns? Your line should be open.
9: Good evening. Thank you for taking the call. Um, to the guests, I live in New York City, and I actually uh, participated in the protest for the Bensonhurst, incident, as well as attended some of the outside demonstrations for the Central Park Jogger. And me being a person that grew up in New York City, when I was in junior high school, we were bused to an area known as Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, and there was an incident in which a white male uh, fondled the breasts and the buttocks of a black female, which uh, prompted some black male students to um, get into a fight. And as a result of it, afterwards uh, they did not allow many of the black students, of which I was one, to get onto the school bus to take us back to our neighborhood, which meant that we had to walk through this uh, Bay Ridge neighborhood. And we were chased by uh, white males who threw bottles at us, who swung bats at us. And this seemed to be a very rampant practice, growing up in new york city um just from your research how widespread would you say that there there are these racialized mobs of angry white youth, or just angry white people in general who participate in these sorts of acts of terroristic violence against non-white people
4: wow that's that's an amazing story i hadn't heard that that particular one about um those incidents in Bay Ridge, um, but it doesn't entirely surprise me um, because, as you said, I think that there was a, a pervasive sense of sort of us versus them at that time. And so, um, you know, it, it, you get this in particular with the, the Howard Beach and Bensonhurst cases, which sound sort of similar to what you experienced, though, with, with, um, you know, in each case resulting in the death of a young black man, um, that you get these sort of these neighborhoods that are so deeply segregated and suspicious, um, and that, that has to do, I think, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the book of of how as the city changed through over the decades, not just in the 80s, you know, you get these sort of um, white ethnic enclaves where where people have been sort of or they feel, I think, kind of embattled or something. I mean, that that was the sense that I got in the way people talked about these cases. And um, there was really this us versus them thing. And so I don't, you know, I, I haven't done enough research to know about sort of statistics about that beyond these well-known cases um, that, that did make it into the press. But I'm sure that there are many more stories like yours um, where, where things like that happened, um, particularly in these neighborhoods in the outer boroughs where, Um, things become very segregated and divided, not just by race, but by ethnicity, too.
9: Would would you say that uh, when you're specifically speaking about uh, those who classify themselves as white, one of my observations is that it seems to be those who are what they would consider lower caste whites, meaning um, Italians, certain ethnicities, or even Irish, that they seem to respond with an extreme level of prejudice, as opposed to the stereotypical wasp. Would uh, would you say that that is an accurate statement or inaccurate?
4: Well, well I mean, these cases that we're talking about, um, Howard Beach and Bensonhurst, in your case, you know, these these are taking place in blue-collar, working-class, white ethnic neighborhoods. Um, you know Howard Beach and Bensonhurst, both being i believe predominantly Italian um, so that that does seem to be the case i don't know if uh, you know i don't i don't know that I would entirely generalize, but it certainly anecdotally seems to be that that that's um, happening in in working class neighborhoods and i mean this is this is sort of above my pay grade um, I'm sure there are academics who could speak to this uh, more effectively, but I do think that that is an interesting observation and and the fact that Um, that that, that's where it's happening. I mean, you're talking about economic competition often um, when you're talking about these things. And so even, you know, this obviously goes back to these, you know, centuries of racism in this country, but even that is a result of economics, right? I mean, slavery, and and as I, I mentioned earlier, you know, lynching was a means of oppression that was, rooted in, econ- in, in, in the need for economic oppression, right, sharecropping and, you know, these, these ways of keeping black people oppressed as cheap labor in this country is where these sort of justification for lynching comes from, right. And if you think about it, this is, this is maybe connected to where you get working class neighborhoods where people are concerned about, um, their jobs and, and things like that, that that seems to, seems to I'm saying, amplify this kind of racism. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting question Then um, I am not an expert in that, but but you raise a really interesting point.
9: Okay. Thank you.
3: A uh, person who called in, oh, uh, last, uh, LBM, LBM, your line should be open. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, ma'am, we can hear
10: you. Oh, okay, all right. Um, uh, Ms. Burns. Can't you hear me, guys?
8: Hello. Yes, okay.
10: hi. Okay, um, my question um, White females have historically practiced racism against black males with their power to falsely accuse. Do you think white females continue to have and exercise that power?
4: Uh, I mean, I, I have no idea. I mean, I, you know, certainly there are, there are examples of that in history, um, but, I mean, continue to. I, I think that's uh, – uh, I don't know exactly.
3: Uh, LBM, are you satisfied?
10: Uh, Did she answer the question no She said no she doesn't think White females continue to have that power
4: Oh have that Power certainly I mean the the power To to falsely accuse is um, Exists and and I I Think that um, You know the I don't think things are that different now than they were in 1989, despite some sort of superficial differences, such that something like this case of the Central Park Five couldn't easily happen again. Though it's worth noting in this case that there's no false accusation, um, only uh, a false assumptions on the part of many people that these guys were guilty, but the jogger herself was in a coma, and so there was, there was no accusation in this case. But I do think that something like this could happen again, and certainly the, the power to falsely accuse um, and, and create a, um, a miscarriage of justice, I'm sure, exists. Um, I, I maybe I misunderstood your your initial question. I'm sorry.
10: So um, you 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 spoke about the uh, the specter of gender versus race uh, previously. Um, do you think that the Do you think that the racism of white females uh, trumped the supposed patriarchy of black males?
4: Well, again, as I said, in this case, there was no false accusation. Um, So I'm not sure. I I don't think we can accuse the victim in this case of of participating in that false accusation, you know, in in the assumptions and their guilt in any way. Um, So I'm not sure that that really applies in this case.
10: No, not, 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 not pertaining specifically to this case, but as, 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 as general phenomena. Um, males are accused of, of patriarchy, of taking advantage of, of this being a patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. But I, um, I don't see where black males have the power to exercise patriarchy, certainly not over white females. So what I'm asking you is Hmm. does the supposed patriarchy of black males trump the power of the racism of white females?
4: Hmm. That's a really interesting question, and um, I don't know. I'm not sure I have a great answer for you, Um, but I think it's certainly worth a discussion. I mean, uh, it's a a great question. but I, I, I'm afraid that I am, I'm no expert here. Um, but certainly, I think that it's. I mean, I think the way that you're describing it is a really interesting way of looking at something that that we've always thought about in terms of who who sort of holds the most power in our society. Um, and I think that, that that this is the one place where there's an interesting, uh, as you said, these sort of different kinds of power that come from from gender and from from race and ethnicity and stuff. And I don't know, it's a very good question.
10: So even in in terms of of looking at it, uh, again, historically, the the Scottsboro Boys, um, you know, Emmett Till, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, just a a whole series of of black males, it it, it seems clear that them being male didn't help their causes Mm. at all.
4: Absolutely, and and the Scottsboro Boys is a a great example of that. Um, You know, two white women who who make a completely false accusation, um, and you know, I mean, even you know, one of them even recanted, and it still took decades for the last of the Scottsboro Boys to to be released from prison. Um, And so I think that that does, to your point, shows really how how that how powerful that ability is to falsely accuse. Um, and how how long that scene can linger.
3: LBM?
10: Yes, Gus, I'm, I'm good. I'm good for now. Oh,
3: okay. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, any of the folks, if you all have questions, uh, again, the free HD line, the number 760 569 seven, six, seven, six. and the code is 564 943 Uh If you dial that line and you have a question, star six, star six. If you're on the talk shoe line, star eight, if you have a question. Uh, I wanted to get your feedback on some of the defense attorneys uh, in the rape case. Um, This is on page 100 of your book. Um, You're writing about one of the attorneys, Howard Dillard. uh, Kevin Richardson's family found Mr. Dillard through a relative, but they were soon unhappy with him. Dillard was a rotund 60-year-old white man with a toupee, and he seemed more interested in self-promotion and ingratiating himself with the media than in defending his client. He'd been an FBI agent earlier in his career, but now worked more on drug cases as a defense attorney. And this goes on. This is on 101 and 102. The day of the arraignment, Kevin Richardson's lawyer, uh, Howard Diller, released Kevin's written and videotaped statements. He claimed that the statements exonerated his client, as Kevin denied raping as Kevin denied raping the jogger in each. Nonetheless. Releasing the tape in which Kevin described several boys chasing down, attacking, and raping the jogger
5: did nothing
3: to help prove his client's innocence, especially when the media cherry-picked the most devastating parts. Diller, for his part, relished the media attention he was suddenly getting, and his dream of one day hosting a talk show may have clouded his judgment when he released the tape's to a hungry news media. Uh, can you talk about, in my opinion, what seems like very inadequate defense for these young children?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think their, their lawyers had, had varying degrees of skill and experience in this thing, but for the most part um, were in over their heads. Um, the one lawyer who was uh, court-appointed, he was, uh, you know, in private practice, but who was paid by the court, uh, Mickey Joseph, um, I think was – was the most effective i mean he 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 really tried his best for his client um and i think that uh the circumstances were such that even a really fantastic uh attorney might not have done much good but many of the lawyers were were not the best um and I, uh, you know particularly in this case of howard diller who who released the tapes to the media um, which was a, a terrible, terrible idea. Um, it seems that he didn't completely understand uh, the law. Which uh, I'm no lawyer, but in this case, um, you know, the law the law says that you only have to be sort of abetting a crime like this to be guilty of it. And so, the fact that he was arguing that that Kevin's tape, in which he denies raping the jogger, but says that he was present and um, sort of a participant in the attack in general um, made him just as culpable as someone who had admitted actually raping the jogger um, so that was really uh, not effective assistance of counsel as as they would say
5: hmm.
3: you I, I thought and you can correct me if I, if i didn 't read correctly um, that the attorneys the defense attorneys um, for each of the five uh, victims, uh, <laughs> defendants, um, for each of the five males, that they really didn't do an aggressive job of saying, hey, uh, these guys didn't do it at all. Not only did the prosecution, did they not really have any evidence uh, to say that you know they were there, that these guys did not do it, that that just wasn't something that was aggressively uh, asserted by anyone, the defense attorneys uh, or too many of the folks who knew about the case. Um, did I read that yeah, correctly? Yeah, I
4: don't think. That was made very. That point was made very strongly. I mean, I, I do think that in some cases the lawyers tried to point out, point that out. But as you said, it wasn't in in such a direct and kind of concrete way. You know, they tried to poke holes in in the testimony of the detectives and and stuff like that, and to suggest that the the statements were were coerced. But um, no, I mean, and. Uh, there's one sort of interesting version of that which is that you know these kids were in the park and some of them this this larger group committed some other crimes in the park that night of of a different nature um harassing and in some cases assaulting uh men a, a, a jo- in one case a jogger who was beaten up and another man who was beaten up walking through the park by this this larger group of teenagers it's not clear whether these five had anything to do with that but you know there were other crimes committed and um, you know, it's an interesting point that, that has been made, which is that they might have argued that uh, essentially that these kids couldn't have been attacking the jogger because they were in another part of the park committing other crimes, um, but that, that sort of alibi defense wasn't used at all. And, uh, you know, that's sort of understandable. I mean, I think admitting that, that they had participated in this thing, which, again, I, I, I'd, it's not clear that they did. Um, might not have been a very effective means of trying to convince people that they were innocent of another crime as people were very ready to, to lump all of these crimes together as part of this so-called wilding. Um, but that left them without, without much, much to say other than to try to point out the problems in the prosecution's case, the lack of evidence. Um, but unfortunately confessions these statements are are incredibly powerful as evidence i mean in general not just in this case and people tend to believe them it's very hard for people to believe that you might falsely incriminate yourself it's illogical and so from the perspective of a of a jury it's easy to say well i would never do that and so this must be true
3: Mm. wow the the uh five uh Defendants—victims uh, that were convicted in this case, uh, McRae, Richardson, Wise, Salam, and Santana—after their convictions, uh, the DA in this case, Elizabeth uh, Letterer, uh, she's continuing. These are some of the other males uh, who are also in this big uh, group, what was labeled a wolf pack uh, in the newspaper. Um, she goes on to some of the other cases, uh, and I'm just going to read. This is on page 162. You write. Uh, The major difference from the first trial in Elizabeth Lederer's opening statement was her presentation of the timeline for the crimes in Central Park. At the first trial, Lederer described the, the rape as having happened before the assaults of male joggers at the reservoir. But both Corey's and Kevin's statements placed the attack on the female jogger after the reservoir attacks. Letterer couldn't tell the jury that Patricia Malay had been attacked when the teens said she was because the evidence didn't support it. But stating definitively that it had happened earlier would only make it look like the defendants didn't really know about the crime or that the detectives had planted the information back when they believed the attack had happened later. Rather than investigate the reason that the defendant's statements were incorrect, she she chose to present an opening statement that simply hid a glaring contradiction from the jury. And I wanted to ask, my definition of deception is to willfully give someone incorrect information and or to willfully withhold accurate information to someone's detriment. So if Yes, I know that this sandwich has been poisoned and I see you sitting down about to eat it and I don't say anything. I am a practicer of deception because I'm withholding pertinent information to your detriment, which is someone's detriment. With that definition, do you think Butterer was being deceptive in I guess as you say, hiding glaring contradictions in this trial?
4: Yes, I do. I mean I think that um that that the fact that those the way that those things were presented differently in the two trials i think says a lot about how that information was being presented you know uh, to the best of their ability to for their case, and that you know sometimes meant leaving out important pieces of information that that might have pointed towards their innocence um uh, that's exactly what you're describing i think. Um, and you know there are other there are other examples of that I think i mean that's that's a particularly glaring one where you know the timeline was going to cause some serious problems for them, and so it was easier to just sort of gloss over it um, but it's it's I think not the only time it happened i mean when the when they initially did DNA testing in this case the you know the the technology was in its infancy and and Uh, It was much more difficult to get a good sample in order to do a test, and so the initial tests they did um, were a little bit unclear. They they clearly did not match the five, because you only need a very small bit of information to rule someone out, but because they were not enough information to include someone had there been a match, they tried to call them inconclusive in the media they released this stuff, the DNA tests are inconclusive, which was not accurate. I mean, they clearly excluded the defendants. Um, And that's, I think, another example of that kind of, you know, trying to shift the way that you present this information to benefit your case. Um, They later found more DNA evidence that was, was more clear and confirmed this initial sense that they were clearly not matches to the five. And so they, they couldn't really hide that fact anymore. But you know, it's the same kind of sort of adapting the information to to fit the story you want to tell. Hmm.
3: I'm I'm just if I'm if I'm incorrect, you know, set me straight. I'm looking at this and you have these contradictions the timelines don't match up something is off here uh either their information is wrong they're confused they don't know what they're talking about in this case because they're giving uh an incorrect time for the actual rape of the jogger or our time is off information is not matching up here and these contradictions are known to the prosecutors and to the police presumably Mm -hmm. um the dna evidence um and with this evidence um, they say it's not conclusive. The language, using words in a, in my opinion, in a very deceptive, skillful manner, to say, oh well, the DNA evidence it wasn't conclusive. To not say it excluded uh, these five males, it didn't match. And then they took the same evidence to do exactly that with other males who didn't say anything. They didn't make any confessions with some of the other males uh, who were accused in this uh, in this crime. Uh, they took the DNA evidence. It didn't match in it. Okay, you're exonerated. You're, we're, we're not even going to focus on you as rape suspects anymore. When I see this sort of conduct on the part of white people, I can only conclude this is what I'm saying, a dedication to racism, white supremacy, because nothing else seems to fit. Um, they are ignoring other suspects. You got uh, Reyes allowed to run free and rape and murder. Other people, uh, you have evidence that certainly looks suspicious if not out and out contradicting that these males could have done this crime, but police officers, district attorneys, they proceed. Yes, they did it. Even though the DNA me- uh, evidence doesn't uh, doesn't match with them, uh, it just shows that they didn't ejaculate. You don't need to have ejaculation to commit rape. Am I – is what I'm saying, does it make sense?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's – you know, there's also the fact that the the statements uh, were completely inconsistent. They were, uh, you know, uh, they were inconsistent even within themselves. You know, they contradicted e- e- themselves within their statements. They contradicted each other, um, and they contradicted the facts, both in terms of the timeline, in terms of the location. Most of the kids said that this crime had happened at the reservoir, when in fact it happened um, much farther north in the park, and really nowhere near the reservoir. Um, things like this these these pieces of information i think should have stood out to any prosecutor or detective who've worked their salt um as as real problems with this case and uh i've never seen any evidence of anyone sort of looking hard at those problems and questioning whether they had the right people and you know i have no idea what on what went on behind closed doors there whether people did sort of see these problems and think maybe they'd gotten it wrong and decided to proceed anyway I have no idea or did they just were they just so sure of themselves that they were blinded by it and and couldn't see that these problems were um, you know catastrophic to their their belief of what had happened in the case
3: context of white supremacy uh, this is on page uh, 180 181. Uh, from the book, folks, again, if you all have questions, if you're on the talk she line, star eight. If you're on the free HD line, star six. Uh, this is page 180, 181 of the Central Park Five. Uh, you're talking about the, the impact that this had on the victims. Uh, Corey Richardson was incarcerated at maximum security prison facilities, Clinton, Attica, Wind, and Auburn, which were scattered across the state of New York. Though 18, by the time he began serving his prison term, he was only 5'5", and his mental and emotional capabilities were limited by his learning disabilities and hearing loss. He was careful not to break any rules or cause trouble, and he survived, but with everlasting scars. It was hard being so far away from home. So while he was at Attica in western New York, he requested a transfer to a facility closer to the city, Instead, he was moved to Wind in Alden, New York, even farther west, a six hour drive from his family. Corey's father, Victor, a maintenance man who started drinking more heavily after his son was convicted, died during Corey's incarceration. Despite the hardships of the various juvenile and adult prisons where Antron, Raymond, Corey, Yusef, and Kevin spent their adolescent years, each had access to educational programs that allowed them to continue their studies. All five achieved high school equivalency diplomas and then matriculated into college programs. Raymond studied science as part of a liberal arts associate's degree. Kevin completed an associate's degree through Dutchess Community College while he was at Harlem Valley and then started a bachelor's degree program through Mercy College. Antoine and Corey began associate's degrees and Yusuf completed one. Their educations were all cut short in 1995 when Governor Pataki banned inmates from participating in New York's tuition assistance program, effectively canceling the college curricula at most prisons across the state can you talk about how all of this impacted these young males, and especially because you write at the end that they don't seem bitter about all this. They're not, you know, rabidly angry at everyone and talking about how everyone has done them so wrong, the impact that this has had on them?
4: Oh, well, it's, it's immeasurable, I think. I mean, you know, as you were just describing, you know, Corey was in uh, maximum security adult facilities from the from, from day one. I mean, first at Rikers and later at these maximum security adult facilities. Um, even though he was 16. Um, He even said we interviewed him for our film, and he said he felt like he was 12. And, I I mean, you know, he was not equipped to deal with this. And and I don't know that we'll ever know what happened to him in prison and to any of them. I mean, um, but I I can only imagine really horrifying things. Um, And these were children. Um, So that alone is, is just devastating to think about. Um, and then, you know, even after they were released, they were they had to register as sex offenders and, and were unable to um, find good jobs and in some cases any, any jobs at all. Um, so, I, I mean, and, you know, this continues to haunt them, certainly, in that way. I mean, I, I was amazed in meeting them at how um, sort of, I, you know, I might have expected someone more hardened by the experience, and they are all um, sort of incredibly generous and, and lovely people um, but I, you know I mean what happened to them is, is so devastating that the scars I think will will never go away
3: hmm did, did any of these five males did any of them are they uh, dedicating their life to fighting against racism do any of them sound like they hate white people
4: um no, I wouldn't I wouldn't say any of them would talk like they hate white people at all. Um uh, but you know, th- you know they all are, are mainly I think just trying to get their their lives on track, you know, support themselves and in some cases their families when some of them have families and um you know, Yusuf Salam in particular, he does um talk a lot about his experience in a way that others um have been a little bit more private. You know, he does um, speak at events and he talks to students and he he really is trying to i think educate people about his story and and what can happen and so he speaks out about it. i mean he has a full-time job also but he um does does as much as he can i think to of spread spread the story and to try to inform people so
3: hmm. um matthias reyes uh he ultimately confessed to the rape and assault of uh, Miss May Lee. Uh, he gave details. The DNA match, I mean, you got, in my opinion, this is a slam dunks DNA match confession. Mm-hmm. He knew the details. And he was a serial rapist. So, I mean, seems pretty likely this is the guy that did it. The other five did not. Um, yeah. <laughs> they, they vacated the convictions ultimately. This is on page 196 and 197. I have to say it again. This is what I mean. Dedication. To white supremacy. This is on page 196. You write uh, about this vacation, uh, the the convictions being vacated, uh, that others were not so pleased. Though the district attorney's office had supported the vacating of the convictions with their affirmation, the New York Police Department had a different perspective. With reputations on the line. Police Commissioner Ray Kelly had called together an independent panel in November 2002, including private attorney Michael Armstrong, who had previously investigated police corruption, Jules Martin and Stephen Hammerman, to do their own simultaneous investigation. Though the VA's report had not accused the New York Police Department of misconduct directly, any admission that the Central Park Five were innocent of the rape automatically raised questions about how and why they had confessed. Members of the police department felt frustrated that the district attorney's office had not included them more in the reinvestigation and had allowed the judge to make a ruling before the police reports had been completed, though their inclusion was not required or expected. In fact, The convening of a panel by the New York Police Department was a highly unusual move, one that reflected deep concerns over the outcome of the case. An attorney for the detective's union publicly accused the DA's report of patent errors and implied that Nancy Ryan had done a poor job. If Nancy Ryan's preparing an inaccurate report, she's deceiving the court a vice president of the union, commented. But Morgenthau backed Ryan up, pointing out that many prosecutors had teamed up to reinvestigate and that ultimately he was responsible for their work. It's my decision, he said. The buck stops here. He also admitted that they had made a mistake back in 1989. Um, Can you kind of comment on how the police department responded and even some of the former DAs?
4: Yeah, um, you know, it's a really interesting thing, the differences here. You know, I mean, the the district attorney's office, when faced with this new information, um, I think, you know, they really did the right thing. They went and they reinvestigated and they concluded what was obvious from the evidence and they presented this piece of evidence to the judge and encouraging them to vacate the convictions. Um, The police department took a different tack as you just read, Um, and uh, the journalist, Jim Dwyer, who wrote a lot about the the problems with the case as it was being reinvestigated, um, he he says that, uh, you know, the police department reinvestigated and the police department found that the police department had done nothing wrong. Um, You know, it's not so surprising that this panel uh, found a way to try to point fingers at the kids still um, because they are, you know, they are protecting themselves. And uh, that continues to happen. Um, I think people who are invested in the case then continue to be invested in this same false narrative, and continue to promote that false narrative um, because it's you know their careers on the line, and so we we continue to get this same kind of language over and over again.
3: Hmm. It seems, uh, and Coulter, you got people, white people, who, if, at least unless I'm misinformed, don't have any direct vested interest in this case, but are sticking hard to the white supremacist mythology in this case. I think she even referenced them as feral beasts. Um, yes. I mean, why, why on earth? Cause you said a part of the reason that motivated you to write this book was because of that sort of thing. People mm-hmm. sticking to this white supremacist mythology, even when there's absolutely no evidence to support that these five males did any of this.
4: Right, right. Absolutely. And I think, I think that that your phrase, you know, dedication, is is especially appropriate here when we're talking about Ann Coulter's comments. Um, uh, You know, why would you, I mean, you know, not that it's okay, but I can at least understand why people who are invested in the case are sort of continuing to promote this. Um, They have a vested interest in in this, you know. They built their careers on this case in some cases. Ann Coulter has has not even that flimsy excuse, um, so uh, you know I'm I astounded by the kind of language that she used
8: today. Just horrifies me.
3: Wow. Wow. Um, I got I got disconnected for a moment. You're you're able to hear me correctly, Ms. Burns? Yes, I am. Okay. Wow. Um, this is this is on page 201, and I thought this was um, was interesting. There was, I guess, a bit of conflict uh, between some of the attorneys uh, in this case. Um, this is on page 201, as I said. Uh, and you write the press called attention to the supposed rivalry between Nancy Ryan and Linda Fairstein. Actually, <laughs> the name just reminded me. I hope people, if you have a good memory reflect back on the sound clip that we started the program with from Dr. King and him talking about language and words. I just want you all to pay attention to the uh, symbolism of the language in this passage. Okay. So we got Nancy Ryan and Linda Fairstein. In addition to the coverage in the daily news, the post featured an article legal Eagles rivalry behind jogger probe that again cited many anonymous sources who spoke of the power struggle between the two women. A sidebar within the article listed biographical facts about each one mentioning that Ryan was divorced while Fairstein was married to a prominent lawyer and quoting an unnamed colleague who described Ryan as not easy to get along with. The article painted Fairstein as tall, blonde, and striking a media darling, in contrast to Lyon, who was dark-haired and serious, it was even rumored that an angry and unflattering character in Fa- Fairstein's successful series of novels was based on Lyon. And Fairstein herself claimed in an article that Lyon had badmouthed her in a background check as she was being vetted for the position of Attorney General under President Clinton a job she did not get. The article suggested that Ryan was jealous of Fairstein and was using the investigation to
2: tarnish
3: her rival's reputation. The article was co-written by Andrea Peaser, a columnist for The Post, who repeatedly expressed her view in those pages that the teenagers were guilty of the rape. The pages of The Post were littered with articles and columns Quoting only sources who denied that the teenager might have been innocent and referring skeptically to Reyes' confession. Uh, can you give some thoughts about some of the conflict, uh, conflict between these two
2: females?
4: No, it's all it's all rumor and speculation. You know, there was a lot of coverage about this supposed rivalry in the press, and uh, you know, I have no idea what the what the exact truth is behind that. Um, but certainly, it was a popular story to sort of play up this rivalry, and I think a lot of that was about trying to discredit Nancy Ryan um, and to suggest that she had ulterior motives in her reinvestigation, um, which is really unfortunate. I, I think her name was sort of dragged through the mud a little bit in this in this thing uh, particularly in those papers that I mentioned who seem to have a vested interest in continuing to argue for the guilt of the five two I mean you know they they too participated um, in this rush to judgment and uh, you know making the case against them back in 1989 and uh, you know I think it's really unfortunate because I think that Nancy Ryan um, did a really thorough investigation and wrote a very thorough um, you know, legal document to, to support why these convictions should be vacated, um, there's no evidence anywhere in there that, that this is a biased report or, I mean, it looks to me and, and to many people who have read it like she really took in all the evidence and considered the facts and came to a, the logical conclusion here. Um, so it, it's too bad that that sort of this idea of this rivalry um, I think was raised really just to try to tarnish her reputation.
3: Hmm. <laughs> Tarnish—that's in the word guide, folks. Uh, if you're listening in that term, tarnish. Um. Why well, I, I wanted to ask before uh, the program wraps up, and I think you have touched on this already—that you know things have not changed that much. Uh, I would strongly assert we continue uh, 2012 to to labor under white supremacy. I wanted to bring up you mentioned in the book law professor Kathleen russell brown uh and she has coined this term the racial hoax uh, to talk about the sort of incidents uh charles stewart up in boston that happened right around the same time as the central park rape case where someone falsely accuses a black person oh they did this or they raped a white woman or looked at a white woman or whatever and then you get this rush to criminal judgment and prosecution and how these sorts of things happened pretty regularly. And I know Bonnie Sweden. Uh, this is from just a couple years ago, white woman in Philadelphia, excuse me, in Pennsylvania. And she, black guy accosted us. He stole our vehicle with my daughter in it. Turns out she is in Disney World uh, with her daughter. No black person did anything to her. Uh, the racial hoax again uh, I assert strongly, as long as white supremacy exists, you can put it on your calendar, this sort of thing will happen again, um, blaming black people, or especially black males, for the rape of a white woman. Um, I just want to make sure we're clear. Do you think this sort of thing could happen again, in 2012?
8: Oh, absolutely. There's no question.
4: I mean, and that, that has, I think, everything to do with the fact that there is still a stereotype in our culture of uh, black people as criminal. And that, that remains to this day. I don't think that has really changed very much. And so it's, uh, you know, I mean the reason I think those hoaxes happen and, and why they sometimes work at least temporarily until they are, are um, uncovered is that people believe them. Um, and I think that reflects those kinds of stereotypes and assumptions that people make and continue to make.
5: Does any of
3: this – did you think of any of this when you were seeing uh, the way former presidential candidate Herman King uh, was treated in the accusations? Do you see any of these same patterns in his treatment?
4: Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I, never, I never thought about that in that context, actually. Um, but, you know, certainly – I mean, I, I don't know anything about the truth of those accusations or not, so I can't say um, whether they would be – I mean – I don't know that they could be considered racial hoaxes. I I don't know whether they are true or not. Um, But, uh, you know, it's an interesting question to wonder how those same kinds of accusations um, would have played against a candidate who wasn't black. Um, I mean, Bill Clinton certainly had his share of um, accusations of sexual misconduct, and um, those had a, a very damaging effect on his political career, too, so
3: when uh, When do you think the documentary film will be complete? Um, we are
4: expecting it to be on PBS on public television um, sometime next year
3: two thousand
4: thirteen
3: okay. Mm-hmm. okay Wow, and you are going to have the victims in it um, who Who are some of the other folks that are going to be in the film um,
4: well we have we have all five um, of the Central Park five in the film we also spoke to some. Um, journalists and people who were sort of in the community at the time, some lawyers, um, as many people who are sort of close to the case as we could. Um, none of the prosecutors or police are interviewed, um, they are all being sued, and as defendants in that suit, uh, you know, were advised not to and chose not to speak with us. So. Okay.
3: Okay. Is there going to be like website, all that, that people can check on to get more information as it gets closer to the release yes, date? Yes, definitely.
4: There, there is not yet uh, that stuff, but there certainly will be as we as we approach a broadcast.
3: Okay. Okay. One of the the folks they wanted to know this is in the chat room. Uh, could you share a bit about your involvement in the Al Mayad Sheikh terrorism case as a paralegal? <laughs>
4: um, sure. That's some that's some good uh, research. I. Um, I worked, um, the the same civil rights lawyers who um, are involved in the civil suit, actually the the firm that I worked for no longer exists, but um, the lawyers that I I used to work for um, were involved in uh, this terrorism trial um, that I, when I worked for them, so I was involved there, you know, doing some research and sort of helping out um, as they did this trial. Um, It was a Yemeni sheik who was accused of um, funding, Terrorist organizations, um, and uh, it was it was my first real exposure to a courtroom in that way, and it was a fascinating experience, I must say. Um, he was convicted, but the um, conviction was actually later overturned uh, because I guess of the uh, conduct of the judge. The, the sorry, the, not the conduct, but the decisions of the judge on some particular uh, issues in the case.
5: Hmm. Okay,
3: okay. Hope that answers their question. Um, We also we will have high expectations for the documentary. I have uh, mentioned Unforgivable Blackness, uh, the rise and fall of Jack Johnson many times uh, on the program. And I just think it's uh, exquisitely done documentary. So we will have high expectations since you uh, got half of the same uh, genetic material as Mr. Ken Burns. We have high expectations. But is your is your dad going to be working with you on this project?
4: Oh yes, he is. He is um, the co-producer and director and writer with us.
5: So. Okay. Okay.
4: It's his film.
5: Right
3: on. Uh, last question. One of the folks in the chat room. They also wanted to know, and relevant to the case, uh, are you now? Have you ever been sexually involved with a non-white person?
4: Um, I'm not sure that that's a question that I'm comfortable answering.
5: <laughs> Go on. But-
4: about my private life
3: okay again the book The Central Park Five A Chronicle of a City Wilding uh, written by Sarah Burns the documentary film scheduled to come out she says 2013 should be a website uh, constructed uh, high hopes I will be looking forward to it is the documentary going to have the same title as the book
4: Um, yes we are calling it The Central Park Five
3: okay Central Park 5, Be on the Lookout 2013. Thank you a ton for uh, sharing a bit of your time and energy with us. Uh, Enjoyed reading the book. I hope folks out there will do some research. At minimum, look for the film next year. Um, Learned a ton. Thank you again, Ms. Burns.
5: Thanks for having me.
3: For sure. Context of white supremacy, we will take a quick commercial break and come back. Also make sure I get a second sound clip in. It is... uh, but they tell me the holiday for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., victim of racism, white supremacy, second sound clip, uh, just recognizing the day. Context of white supremacy will be right back after
5: the commercial.
2: racismdaily.com your number one source for global news reports on race racism and overt actions of white supremacy from asia to the Americas to europe to australia to africa racism is not a thing of the past it is our current reality be informed be globally informed you should be the first to know racismdaily.com racismdaily.com racismdaily.com
0: Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny? Smiling when you are not happy? Agreeing when you really disagree? counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity, using words correctly, following counterracist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works and how to counter it the open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counterracist suggestions, so you can produce the code that works for you Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice.
4: That's counter racism.com.
0: Do you need a one stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting and creative graphic design that's second to none we also offer photography photo retouching videography and video editing at triumphant multimedia our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at trimultimedia.com
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Justice with the Cows Radio program. If you want to learn about, understand, and counter racism, white supremacy, be sure not to miss a Cows episode. We keep them jammed, packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words, to help eliminate the system of racism, white supremacy, ASAP. Also, to be able to invest in my counter-racist efforts, Co-hosting the Cows Radio program, please visit my blog, just do justice today.blogspot.com You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words.
2: I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. Now, it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay, but we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully, and we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats, I talk about the threats that were out what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop.
5: I don't mind.
2: Like anybody, I would like to live That we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men.
1: I know that a lot of non-white people learn a variety of things about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I know he was a victim of racism. What things do you know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said or did that we can use today to help replace? White supremacy with justice.
5: Mm
11: -hmm. What things did he say or do that could help us? Yes, today. Um, Well, one of the things, yeah, I think that one of the things that he said that stands out to me is when he went to Memphis, he makes a statement. He says that, I don't know what we're going to do with some of my sick white brothers. And I think that that was a pivotal statement on his part because he came to realize, E A L E Y E S that he was dealing with something that was deeper than his original understanding. And so I think that's a great instruction for us. And the other thing that I learned from him is, and others is this role of religion that has us under lockdown. There's a, there's a a Moment when Martin Luther King Jr. Says that he was at his home And he got this vicious Phone call late at night And Coretta was in the room With at least one or two of the children They were sleeping And he got this vicious call And You know, they said they were going to blow up his house, and he was just, I mean, it floored him. But he goes on to say that uh, Jesus told him to proceed, to move forward, and then he says, and Jesus said, he'll never leave me. He'll never leave me. He'll never leave me. But yet he was assassinated. Uh, Malcolm he said he believes in Allah, and yet he was assassinated. And I can go down the list. So the question is the real role of religion in how it relates to applied liberation. Those are two of the things that I learned from Martin Luther King. As well as watching what's going on in In Egypt, you know, they pray five times a day, and their prayers did not seem to relieve them from their oppression. It wasn't until they got up and went to work and got busy, and it's very fascinating that all of that took place in liberation square it didn't take place in freemasonry square it didn't take place in five percent square it didn't take place in omega or delta square and we can go down the list it didn't take place in christian square and what my point is that all of that is irrelevant to liberation from under white domination. So those are the two things that I, you know, can think of. But I greatly admire uh, Dr. King and his, and you know his courage. And I think toward the end of his life, he was assassinated because he was in the process of transformation. And there's a very famous picture of him, Doctor Martin Luther King Jr. standing while Lyndon Johnson is signing the civil rights legislation. It's fascinating to me as Dr. King was there smiling over this the passage of this legislation. That not too far from there, the FBI was planning his assassination. And it goes back to this idea that I spoke about earlier, that when someone knows something that you do not know, you are at a disadvantage and they are at an advantage. And the other, the last thing I'll say about Dr. King is that he taught us Through great instruction, what does not work to solve the problem once and for all?
3: Context of white supremacy. The address is Kamaukambon.org. Kamaukambon.org. I'm gonna give us one more sound clip and then I'll share a few thoughts and check the phone lines. One last sound clip.
8: LZ Granderson says he wants to hate Rick Santorum, but he can't. Maybe it's because he was a pastor, maybe it's because he's gay and he's used to hearing hurtful comments about his sexuality. Well, whatever the reason, LZ says, and he writes this in a CNN.com opinion piece, that because of his personal insight into why he thinks Santorum is disrespectful to gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people, he's got a point to make. LZ, you write, Santorum is more than his homophobic rhetoric. And you are more than a gay guy who opposes it.
7: Yeah, uh, you know, I think it's very easy to fall into labels, to fall into constituent groups because we're in a voting year, and letting one or two items in our lives define our entire human being. And trust me, I have said some things in my household about Rick Santorum that are not very uh, good. Uh, And I regret saying those things because I know they come from a place of hate and I cannot allow myself to be dragged down to hate because once you hate, then you start to give up. You start to lose hope. And I don't want to lose hope. I don't want to lose hope in this country. I don't want to lose hope in the people who oppose me because there are a lot of people who are against gay rights. And if I lose hope in them, then, you know, what does that really say about the future of not just gay rights, but just civility in this country in general?
8: With that said, you, you also write that he sows seeds of discord for political gain
7: yeah, you know it 's no different than any of the other politicians who who turn to social issues as a way to divide this nation as opposed to looking at the things we have in common and finding ways to bridge those differences uh, in santorum 's case uh, you know I, I talk about gay rights and the peace, but you know there 's also issues about him doing sort of a flip flop if you will with the issue of abortion. Uh, the discussion about, you know, President Obama's intent, uh, saying things like he's setting out to destroy this country when that just sounds absolutely ludicrous. I mean, you may not agree with his politics, but to pretend as if he's out to destroy the country or uh, to scare people to vote for you is just disingenuous. So, and I think that's the reason why this conversation has gotten so skewed.
8: So, so what do you say then to those conservatives, L- LZ, that say, but LZ, I'm not mm-hmm. going to give up on my religious values.
7: I'm not asking you to give up on your religious or your Christian values. I'm actually asking you to follow them. I mean, if you read the Bible thoroughly, the one word you see repeated over and over again is love. And I've sat through hours and hours of debates, I'm sure you have, and many of the people watching now. How often have you heard the word love said by these men and women and women who claim to be these great Christians, who, ca- who claims to be these followers of the Bible? You know, they've talked about gay people. They talk about the poor, immigrants, and I don't hear the word love. So if you truly are a follower of Christ, then do what his greatest commandment said, and that is to love. If you love first, then I think you'll see the tone of the rhetoric take a much more civil uh, turn.
8: LZ Granderson, thanks for sharing a little love this morning with us. Appreciate it. And you can read LZ's piece at CNN.com slash opinion. If you like, join the conversation, leave a comment for him. He loves to engage with you
3: context of white supremacy, uh, that piece uh, from CNN, just trying to get in extra info. Um, recent controversy, uh, Santorum, he's one of the presidential candidates. Um, while wow. I hope folks saw, I had that sound clip as well. I hope people saw when he made the statement about not wanting to give funding to take it from some people and give it to black people. And then he came out and said, oh, no, 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 I didn't say that. I blurred my words. I misspoke. Didn't say that. I certainly wasn't saying anything blatantly racist uh, in my campaign. But, yeah, I thought that was interesting, making sure that they get an effeminate black male out to uh, defend and and not give up on this white guy who's made, in my opinion, blatantly white supremacist commentary. At any rate, um, I will double check. I know uh, LBM, she had some thoughts that she was writing in the chat room about how our guest – uh, may have been practicing white supremacy consciously. I was going to see if she wanted to share her thoughts. Uh, I also had two news reports. I'll get LBM as soon as I see her on the line. Um, yeah, I thought she was going to call in. I'll double check and, and get her in as soon as she... Oh, I can't. I'll get her right now. LBM, if you want to share your thoughts on what you heard from my guest, Sarah Burns, your line should be open.
10: Gus, am I on? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Um... Can I, do you mind if, if I, um, read a poem, um, um, leading into my response?
0: I reckon
6: that'll be all right.
10: Okay. Um, this is a work in progress, but, um, uh, that I started a while ago. It kind of, um, speaks to, um, this conversation tonight. Um, you give her your money freely while calling me gold digger. She spends your money wantonly while calling you black nigger. She benefited from centuries of your free labor. Her lies caused you to hang from trees. Yet you promote her as your most supportive companion, while she and her true man keep you on your knees. Isabella sent her man to enslave you and your resources, while mistress sent your daughter to her husband, a child of ten, hadn't even seen her courses. Your sons are miseducated by the one you hold up high. Your brother doing 15 to life because she say he was between her thighs. Two white whores on a freight train. Nine black boys suffered terrible fates. Have you really forgotten the lies of Price and Bates? The lies of racist woman Fannie Taylor caused the whole of Rosewood to go down. Yet today you stand proudly and boldly giving her the sacred crowns. The lies of So when you choose to be with her, don't speak ill of me. Remember when just looking at her could have you hanging from a tree. How do you want to go out, black man, hanging, blood dripping into the soil, or begging and pleading like Mandingo while racist female watch you boil? So please remember Mandingo when you you forget and forgive. When white female is done with you, maybe she'll let you live.
6: Awesome reading.
8: Wow. Um,
10: I don't I don't remember if I had gotten a chance to um to speak with um Daniel McGuire, but um Miss Burns kind of reminded me of when she was on. You know, I think that um typically when white females um you know, delve into these issues of, of race, particularly um, concerning uh, the assaults of, of their men on black people. They're really coming in to to frame the issue, to frame, frame the issues, you know, for the rest of us, and typically absolve themselves as, as white females of, of, of any wrongdoing. And you know she just totally didn't want to to claim the role that white females have historically played in you know the imprisonment and and killing of of black males around this this issue of of false accusation although um that was that was not the necessarily the issue in this particular case I presented the question to her uh, in, in general as a general question. And, you know, she just she tried to use this particular case to say that this particular woman didn't um, initially accuse, accuse these boys, but she tried to use this particular issue as not to answer the question in general.
3: For for folks who are listening, if you don't recall or you don't know who Danielle McGuire is, a uh, suspected racist white female, she was on the program in September of 2011 to discuss her book, At the Dark End of the Street. Uh, it's about long legacy of white men raping black females. Uh, and I mean, this is just, this is not a crime under white supremacy, Tawana Brawley, Uh, Nakisu Diallo. This is just worldwide. This is not a crime under white supremacy. Um, You said you saw similarities between the two. If you recall, what what reminded you of uh, Daniel McGuire?
10: I think that at some point you uh, you kind of questioned her on the role of of white females and and what was what was happening uh to black females at the time and if i recall um if i recall correctly she she kind of didn't answer that question
3: Mm. i don't uh i haven't listened to that program so if i'm recalling if my memory is good enough for uh for four months ago um i definitely remember in the way that she wrote the book, I don't recall as much about it. I know I asked her about that on the program. I just don't remember her response, but I remember her writing it so that one, if you're confused, non-white person, you would not look at this and see white women as being complicit with what's right. happening in these cases where black females are being raped. White women weren't coming out. Yeah, sister, we got you. No, not at all. They were knowing that they're racist raping, Husbands and sons and brothers and uncles knowing what they did, and we're going to be quiet, whatever, as long as you don't bring any of those nigger winches home to marry or whatever, whatever. We don't have anything to do with that, and helping to exonerate them in many cases, participating in juries and not sharing information, Uh, total team member uh, through and through. You see it today even with Jerry Sandusky, his wife sticking through, through and through. Um,
10: Right. I even read in um in one book uh, some, I'm sure there's there's other um instances of this. I can't remember the book right now, but in doing um just a cursory um, research on it, I remember reading where oftentimes um, uh, the slave owners' uh, wives actually chose the uh, enslaved women uh, for the the husband to to rape because they figured if he was um you know engaged with with one of these enslaved women that certainly he would not be leaving her to you know to be with um one of one of these enslaved females versus if he were to go off of the plantation seeking another uh, white female so that oftentimes they they were you know very much involved in actually choosing you know the the women and girls for these white men to rape
3: the white woman is integral I would say to anyone in this case I see the caller on talk to I'm going to get your hand right now um, I would say for anyone consistently you cannot sleep on or with white women they are extraordinarily dangerous and in this case even though you didn't have the white woman who was raped uh, not by these five males Um, But she didn't make the accusation, but you've definitely got the fingerprints of racist women all over this case. Uh, The district attorney, lead district attorney in this case, white woman, prosecuting attorney, white woman, white women making major decisions that resulted in these five non-white males being wrongly incarcerated in greater confinement. Um, the person who called in M one, uh, I wanted to open your mind up to see if you had any, any comments if what you're saying is gonna coincide with LBM. Oh
6: yes. Uh wow. I, I I do agree with you some point, you know, that that like Danielle McGuire, she wasn't white 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 women do tend to leave themselves out of the equation. You know, like for instance, when you talk with her about the uh, the fact that this prosecutor Elizabeth Laderer deliberately withheld evidence that could have that would have acquitted these you know that would have acquitted these children at the time, but 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 it didn't, but that did not seem. To be something very devastating to her. Now, if you if you remember that point,
5: yeah, I remember exactly, also, yes,
6: sir. Yeah, and also, when I asked her, you know, about the jogger, you know, Ms. Mealy, again acknowledging the fact that she says she doesn't have any memory of the crime, she refused to answer whether. When I asked her whether Miss Neely was being racist, or even when I said, "Do you think people are forcing her to be racist?" Because again, like like I said, you don't have memory of the crime. Okay, but well, it's been proven without a doubt these young men didn't do that to you. Why then, if you're not being a racist, would you suggest, "Oh well, they"? They knew certain things, therefore they had to be in on it. Remember, she refused to answer that. So that's <laughs> my view that she's being right. She's practicing racism.
3: Do uh, I know LBM? You said you reside in the New York area. Is that yes. okay? Um, i call it M1. Do you also reside in the New York area or no?
6: Oh, yes, I do. And, uh, I said, I was there amongst that whole time. You know, I'm even friends with a sister, one of the young men. And because they're on trial, I'm not going to mention who it is. You know, because I do want, Even though the people that are responsible for them should be in prison, it more likely isn't going to happen. I do want economic compensation, so, yeah, I'm not going to reveal who I know. But it was, but for a while, I said, I'm just, I would just argue with people on how, they didn't do it. And even if you point things out, someone wrote in the chat chat room, dragged through the mud. I I remember saying, oh, they dragged this woman through the mud, but yet none of their clothes had any mud stains on them. And I can go on and on <laughs> how this shouldn't have happened, but
10: didn't Donald Trump uh, uh, put some uh, two-page, like middle full-page um, ad in the um, in the Times or something, calling yes, for the stiffest uh, yes. penalty for 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 these yes, for these young did. boys?
6: Yes, he did. Mm. The racist known as Donald Trump, and I'm mm-hmm. saying he's a racist because Ed, Ed Schultz, Schultz, Schultz said it on TV. As well as Joy Behar, so I'm not insulting the man. But yes, he did put out an ad calling for the death penalty for these for these children at the time. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars of his own money has yet to apologize for that, and and I remember. I remember people saying, you know, considering the 13 years they had to deal with, you know, he, he should compensate them for that. But again, like I said, no, no. This is why we say it's a system. All the whites involved, even with all of this, still refuses they refuse to compensate these young men.
5: Right.
6: Yeah, now, now look at Bill Ayers, who you had on your show, Gus, not too long ago. Remember him?
3: That was, well, I guess time is relative. That was uh, 2009, but yes, I do remember him.
6: Former terrorist. Yeah. Now, that's just the point I'm making. You know, this is what white people say. Oh, he's unrepentant terrorist. Blew up the Pentagon. He blew up One Police Plaza. Have you ever known William Ayers in his lifetime ever to be unemployed?
2: He's a distinguished professor mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> at the University of Illinois. A
3: distinguished professor, former terrorist. Oh, and I just I just wanted to throw this in, and then I'm gonna mute my line, um, sir. Uh, and LBM. Just just for accuracy, uh, Donald Trump didn't just take out one ad. He took out four ads in the local New York newspapers trumpeting Mm -hmm. the death penalty for these young males who were at the time between the ages of 14 and 16. It wasn't one ad. It was four ads, and he – cumulative, the total he spent was $850,000 for these four ads that took up a half page, the Times and other uh, publications promoting the death penalty for these five non-white males between the ages of 14 and 16. Uh, Donald Trump, the Apprentice. Hmm.
6: Yes, yeah, that that is that is correct. But but as I tell people, when when you hear these young men can't get a job, think about William Ayers. Like I said. He, He's not only a distinguished professor, he is an author. He sits on political committees. And this is the man white people say is an unrepentant terrorist. Yet, because of the system white supremacy, they have no problem giving this man employment. But these young men who, once again, white people, even though I always knew they were innocent, white people the DA exonerated them, they still have to suffer. And that's what's really hard. that's what's really horrible about this.
10: Yeah, and that, and that's a um a very critical um uh issue because um I can remember watching um a documentary uh coming out of Philly, I believe, where um there was a number of um, black males who had been exonerated um, through DNA of uh, rates. And these, you know, these brothers had done, you know, anywhere from 10 to, to 20 years and they were exonerated. And I believe the, um, the state of Pennsylvania was wanting them to pay to have their uh, records um, expunged. So, you know, just because you were actually proven innocent and actually got out of jail doesn't mean that your record is cleared. So this is this is a continuing problem that um, you know these black males continue to have. I mean, I I highly doubt that uh, airs has a felony charge on on his record. And no one has said that that he he didn't do, you know what what he was accused of of doing. He didn't even say he didn't do it.
6: Yeah. So the point you know, is, if you watch these TV shows, that's what they would like to say about him. But it's like if he, but it's like if he did all these things, why is he gainfully employed?
9: Right. See,
6: y'all, y'all don't ask that. I mean we know why. Because he's still part of the team. Mm-hmm.
10: Gus, I forget who the um who the male was that you had on, but I remember putting that this same question of uh supposed uh black male patriarchy um to him as well and didn't get an answer. So I can't seem to get an answer from uh racist male and female on, on that question. Yeah.
6: Was that and, uh, Jensen?
10: I, you know what? I don't remember. No, right no, no, now. No.
6: I, I do remember. I do remember. He even, I do remember this guy even gave a uh, racist answer. When you asked him that, he said, rape, if you remember. <laughs> That's okay, I,
10: okay, like, I do like Patriarchy.
6: Yes, yes, yes. Rape. He went
10: straight to, to 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 something sexual. That's right. And he promptly
6: left after that question. <laughs>
5: yeah.
6: If, if anyone else wants to speak, they can go ahead. Uh, I'll
10: hang up now. Actually guys, I'm 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 having to um to hang up myself unfortunately. I gotta go on the plantation in the morning.
3: Oh, understood. Understood. Thank you both for sharing. Uh appreciate again your insight. Um, context of white supremacy. If there are uh if there are other folks, if you have anything you wanna share, feel free. Um I know they were quite, I knew. I said we have quite a few folks who listen in from the New York area. Um, always good to get feedback from folks who might have uh, lived through some of this experience and some of the other cases uh, that were happening the Howard Beach incident and Eleanor Bumpers, Michael Stewart, all of the, the different incidents of white terrorism that were happening in the New York, Tawana Brawley certainly. Uh, that were happening in the New York area. I did want to also make sure I uh, got the – I forgot I had that on my list to ask her about that, uh, Donald Trump taking out those ads, because that is amazing. Um, also, a uh, listener, uh, the question, Aaron Bird, uh listener, he asked a question about her involvement in the trial of uh, Al Moyad. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Uh, That conviction was overturned. Just a little bit more information. Uh, The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York on October 2nd overturned the convictions of Yemeni cleric Sheikh Mohammed Ali Hassan Al-Moyad, Assistant Mohammed Zayed, because of evidentiary errors that deprived the defendants of a quote unquote fair trial. Al-Muyad and Zayed were convicted in March 2005 on charges that they led a terror-funding network based in Brooklyn. At their convictions, both maintained that additional evidence on government surveillance recordings would have showed that they were not guilty. During their appeal, al Moyad and Zayed agreed that they had been entrapped by government informants and presented character witnesses who said neither of the two condoned violence and that they had spoken out against terrorist acts. Context of white supremacy. uh, Mr. Berg uh, said that he feels the entire so-called war on terrorism is just further uh, terrorism against black and non-white people worldwide. Uh, He just wanted to connect that with racism, white supremacy. Uh, The person that called in 5407, 5407. Uh, your line is open. Do you have uh, questions, comments?
1: Um, I guess I just have a comment. This would be more so peace to you, Gus, and all the other listeners. Um, I just thought it was interesting that she sort of talked around the, the term racism. Um, I know that she used the word stereotype. She said that blacks are stereotyped as criminals, and then she went on to say that uh, there were several other crimes committed in the park Um, and she wasn't sure if the Central Park Five or whatever she referred to them as, if they were part of the other crimes that happened in the park. That was really interesting to me. And also, um, whenever she was asked questions, she didn't really, like, give a straight, like, yes or no. She more or less wanted to, like, explain herself, and I feel that she was, you know, in a sense practicing racism.
3: I agree. I agree. She was using that term prejudice quite a bit. Uh, not instead using of
1: just saying racism. Like, are you serious? You're like saying stereotype and prejudice, and but you're not trying to say racism. Like, that's what it
3: is. <laughs> She's quite a, i mean, her dad, her dad did. I don't know if people have seen Unforgivable Blackness. Um, uh, a suspected white supremacist did the film but it is phenomenal it's it's like 3 hours and some change on the life of black uh, of Jack Johnson um, and just like i mean it's the same story it's the same story just 100 years earlier and it's one victim instead of five but same story white people going crazy being terrorist excuse me i said going crazy dr Wellsing my apologies white people being terrorist and evidencing their dedication to white supremacy and especially the sex area, uh, any rumor or hint that a black male might be interested or wink at a white woman, and they just go berserk with the white terrorism. Same thing. Anyone who's seen that film, she cannot be mystified. Like his daughter, if that's what you've grown up with the house, uh, in the house with. What I talk about when I say white people are not ignorant? You grew up in the house with your dad making three-hour documentaries on the life and times of Jack Johnson. You are not mystified about what's going on with the Central Park case at all. Uh, I mean, you you gotta recognize, that, oh yeah, we were on the set to that. Yep, yep, Jack Johnson. <laughs> Like, uh, she should be real comfortable uh, calling it exactly what it is, racism, white terrorists. Just that point right there that she was uh, – the words, the words, very skillful with not using the most accurate terms uh, to describe what's happening.
1: Right, and then she didn't want to agree with your, um, your definition of the system of white supremacy or whatever. She was kind of just going around that as well. And then she kept saying, well, uh, I do think it still exists, but it's not as blatant in a sense. Like she was saying that. And I'm just like, okay, like you're still saying like racism exists, but you're not saying it, I'm trying to go around it. But
2: yeah.
3: Don't buy the book. Make sure I get that in. If it's white people, don't buy the book. Um, if you gotta, gotta, if you, you know, want to own a copy cause it does have constructive info. Um, If you got, you know, understanding and you're not mystified by white people um, being racist, even when they reveal truthful information about the system, um, get a used copy. You know, get the cheapest used copy you can find. There are tons of used bookstores online. You can get used copies. Uh, I think someone got me my used copy off my wish list for like 32 cents. Like, uh, do not give these racists money so that they're benefiting from talking about their crimes. Um, don't buy the books. I didn't go to the library. You can get a lot of this stuff. Just go to the library, the documentary films, a lot of the books. Stuff is available for free. Do not uh, give them any of your coins. Um, wow. I hear anyone – has anyone that's you know, on the line or that's listening, has anyone seen Unforgivable Blackness, her father's documentary film? Wow, not seeing any – you all should check that out uh, for homework. I, I remember folks have asked consistently um, about my interest in reading uh, and how you know I became focused on white supremacy. I remember this documentary, like uh, I think it came out in 2005. I think they released it for quote unquote Black History Month in 2005. And I remember, I didn't even watch PBS. Like I was not someone super interested in documentaries and I think I just happened to be on PBS at the time, and I saw it, and I was like, "Oh man, I should check this out. This looks interesting," and I was captivated. I mean, it will easily hold your interest for all three hours and change. It is uh, it, I, you talk about a phenomenal case study in white terrorism, uh, and some of the side comments. My good, I have, I have, an, uh, I have the disc right now. I could play some different segments. James Earl Jones is cowbell. James Earl Jones is talking, right? They're interviewing a lot of different people, and then they show archival footage as well. Her dad, uh, they're talking to James Earl Jones, and he says, uh, this wasn't about race. (laughs) The name of the film is Unforgivable Blackness. That's the name of the film he's saying. Oh, this wasn't about race. This was about power. And man, it is it's fat for a lot of different reasons. It is fascinating, uh, and just seeing how ugly, you know, how white people get down, like they talk about pretty openly. Uh, Jack Johnson could have been could have been killed at any of his fight. Like if you could imagine uh, Muhammad Ali fighting at a Klan rally, that's about that would be about an accurate representation of of the life and times of Jack. Johnson. And he's dating a white. It would be like O.J. Simpson if you could mix O.J. Simpson and Muhammad Ali together. So you get the whole having sex with a white woman chaos that that causes for white people, and then Muhammad Ali, uh, ain't no Viet Cong called me, nigger, and I'm not going over there to fight for these whites. So you put all that together in one person, you'd be kind of in the ballpark of Jack Johnson. And just imagine that person fighting a white person and really beating, humiliating a white person at anything in a Klan rally. That would be about an accurate explanation for – Jack Johnson and what he did. And I think that is conveyed truthfully, accurately in Unforgivable Blackness. There you go. Um, Anything else? Um, I'm definitely curious if there's anybody, uh, New York area folks, uh, if you all have the interest, uh, if you experience any of the things that we talked about or you remember, if you're growing up and you remember these incidents and you would like to share, definitely would appreciate hearing that it's not possible today maybe down the road anybody if you experience i think marcus mcgee he was saying on the program we got to share our stories uh this is important uh, information uh, i'm trying to have my own uh, commentary together like any anything hurricane katrina you all should have bang if your children ever ask wow what were you doing Our grandchildren they ask they get older Hurricane Katrina, you should have a stellar presentation on racism, white supremacy, films, reading, literature, the whole nine. Beautiful illustration, I shouldn't say beautiful, tragic illustration of white supremacy and what it means to be a black person. You should use that real-life documentation of what we're talking about. Caller in New York, uh, did you have something to add, Caller in New York? Yes.
9: Um My observation of the guests for tonight, I really pay attention to a lot of the phraseology that uh, a lot of the white guests use. And she kept using the term interesting. And when I observe many of my so-called coworkers, that's a phrase that they use oftentimes that kind of tries to put you off and alert others suspected racists, that you're making a point or you're bringing to light information which they don't want to address, but rather than say they don't want to address it, they say it's interesting, and that stood out to me quite a bit about much of what she shared tonight uh, when I uh, shared about my actual experiences and not from doing research but actually participating in the events that happened in uh, Bensonhurst as well as Howard Beach, as well as going to the actual Central Park Jogger trial, um, I saw firsthand the level of mob mentality that goes on in New York. I grew up around that. I've been repeatedly chased by mobs of white youth with bats and all sorts of things throughout different neighborhoods of New York City, and it is particularly vicious when you're looking at the so-called lower caste white-identified persons, those who are Italians and those who are um, Irish. They are particularly vicious, in my experience in New York.
5: Wow
3: i uh I didn't grow up in the New York area, but I remember uh these incidents being discussed um, not by people that were in my immediate circle like don't no, I don't want anyone to think that my family did not sit around and talk about white supremacy, but I remember these issues being talked about. Um, Eleanor bumper Spike Lee, Spike Lee. He's been Spike Lee also does a lot of great documentaries on white supremacy. He mentions a lot of these incidents in his films, especially uh, "Do the Right Thing." Uh, he has, I think, there's a mural that says "Tawana didn't uh, Tawana didn't lie." That's what it says, and uh, "Do the Right Thing." And also uh, Eleanor Bumpers. Uh, they they give a uh, Kind of a roll call of some of the victims, Michael Stewart, Eleanor Bumpers, uh, the Howard Beach incident, I think Do the Right Thing uh, hits a lot of these incidents. I don't remember the Central Park rape case. Maybe it came
6: out before
3: the rape case. I have to see the month that uh, Do the Right Thing came out, but I don't recall it making a reference to the Central Park rape case, which is uh, kind of interesting given the climate. Um, Hmm. Oh, and also excellent point about her use of terms. Were there any other terms that stood out? Both of those, interesting and prejudice. Um, yes, yeah, she. I, I, excellent observations. Were there any other terms that stood out?
9: That 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 was the most glaring to me. I, I recognize that that pop pattern. A lot of uh, white individuals they'll use that interesting, and it usually means they're not going to answer what you're saying. They're just going to say, interesting. That, that usually alerts me to the fact that they're usually probably being manipulative or avoiding direct questioning whenever I hear that interesting comment. Or it's kind of like when you hear a white person says, perhaps you don't understand meaning that you cannot possibly grasp or fathom the information that they're presenting to you and therefore you are incorrect. If you're not in agreement with what they're saying to you, perhaps you don't understand or you don't understand what I'm saying to you.
3: It's, I know for myself, I use the term interesting when I purposely want to be vague about what I think or how I feel about something. Like I have that in mind to intentionally use that term when I want to be vague or, you know, noncommittal about something, when I don't want to really reveal too much. I'll use that term, interesting. Absolutely. It's a word
9: that gives a person – an opportunity to not really say anything, but to fill in the silence with something other than just dead air. I also would, another observation, not from this particular um, show that I've noticed in observing uh, white people in their speech patterns is when they say to tell you the truth. Whenever I hear that term, the person is usually lying because the truth doesn't need to, you know, be announced. Or when someone says, honestly speaking, they're usually lying.
3: Non-Mightywick has said that uh, several times <laughs> when people make that, phrasing, that he is on alert that, you know, okay, this person might be trying to deceive me. Um, The truth doesn't need to be promoted. Uh, I've I've heard him say that often. Um, Wow. I wanted, just speaking of phrasing, uh, I wanted to read that one passage again, because I just thought there were so many things that stood out. Uh, There's so many different phrases and words that are in Mr. Fuller's word guide. Um, I want to read this. You, uh, the caller in New York, you can tell me. We got about 10 minutes left in the program. Uh, Any of the folks, uh, if you have questions or comments you want to get in, uh, feel free to dial. Let me get the uh, page.
5: number. And I have
3: a, a quick story that I will share. Make sure I do not in the broadcast before sharing invest in the cows if you think it is constructive uh invest okay this is on page 201 of her book invest if you think it's constructive uh and share links that's also super helpful uh if you think non-white people would benefit from hearing this okay this is 201 from the central park five The press called attention to the supposed rivalry between Nancy Ryan and Linda Fairstein. In addition to the coverage in the Daily News, The Post featured an article, Legal Eagles, Rivalry Behind Jogger Probe, that again cited many anonymous sources who spoke of the power struggle between the two white women. A sidebar within the article listed biographical facts about each one, mentioning that Ryan was divorced while Fairstein was married to a prominent lawyer and quoting an unnamed colleague who described Ryan as not easy to get along with. This article painted Fairstein as tall, blonde, and striking, a media darling In contrast to Ryan, who was dark haired and serious, it was even rumored that an angry and unflattering character in Fairstein's successful series of novels was based on Ryan, and Fairstein herself claimed in an article that Ryan had badmouthed her in a background check as she was being vetted for the position of Attorney General under President Clinton. A job. He did she did not get. The article suggested that Ryan was jealous of Fairstein and was using the re investigation to tarnish her rival's reputation. The article was co-written by Andrea Chaser, hope I'm saying that correct, a columnist for the Post, who repeatedly expressed her view in those pages that the teenagers were guilty of the rape. The pages of the Post were littered with articles and columns quoting only sources who denied that the teenagers might have been innocent and referring skeptically to Reyes' confession. Um, any thoughts uh, just on the terms that are, are used uh, in that passage? As I said, several of them are in the word guide. Any <laughs> thoughts on that, caller in New York?
9: Well, the term littered clearly is an indication of trash, um, and when I hear that they would make the characterization of one being so-called the uh, blonde, or as they would call, having fair hair, and is, is the character one of their names Fairstein? Yep, that's pretty interesting. If that's their name, um, it it just seems like typical. Uh, White-on-white white discrimination among themselves, uh, just as non-white people have discrimination amongst themselves, or so-called inner prejudice. When I observe a lot of white people, it appears that the more Nordic that their features are, the more that they fit the uh, blonde hair, blue-eyed ideal white person um, mold. Those individuals are held to a higher esteem in their sort of cash, cash system. So that that would seem consistent with their way of doing things. And in New York, which is uh, pretty um, well populated with many different, um, I guess you'd call them um, ethnic types of white people, it it is pretty obvious that those that are the blonde here blue-eyed white appear to be higher up on the echelon or, or more um, of a status than those who are darker-haired white individuals because they're usually suspected of being either Jewish, Italian, or Irish. And many of them go out of their way to make certain that they're not misclassified as any of those things. In my
3: experience, anywhere. Hmm. Wow. Uh, I, I want to make sure I get my story in, and then if you have anything else to share, feel free. Um, one thing I did think when she brought in the comparison to Bill Clinton and saying that he also experienced a lot of problems uh, being accused of sexual misconduct, um, that is, in my opinion, what I would say now if I had the time and the interest Um, If you could imagine Bill Clinton being a black person, how he would have been treated, I'll just rest there. Um, My story. I'm at a coffee shop earlier in the day, and there is a couple – sitting next to me or in close proximity we'll say in close proximity and they're having muffins chocolate muffins dark chocolate muffins and i'm i'm not even you know paying attention just you know they're sitting in my field of vision and uh, they're talking and it's like they're expressing disappointment about these muffins like man this is not quite what I expected, and I'm a little disappointed. And the one white woman, she said, uh, yeah, I was expecting it to be orgasmic. And she stopped, and she looked around like, oh, I said that out loud. That startled, oh, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said that, at least not out loud. And so she looked around, and then she went back, and they you know, just continued about their uh, lack of satisfaction with these chocolate muffins wanted to make sure I shared that <laughs> Dr. Welsing moment for sure. Um, uh, we have like five or about four minutes left. Is there anything else you wanted to get in, uh, call in New York before uh, we wrap up?
9: Um, just there, there was a, I, I don't know if you know or heard about, there was a recent incident in which a black male was uh, killed by enforcement officers just the other night. He went downstairs to respond to what he perceived to be um, a disturbance at his door. He assumed that someone was trying to force their way inside. And he went downstairs. He was in the middle of watching a movie with his uh, fiancee or so forth. And went downstairs in his pajamas and came back upstairs a few minutes later and said to his woman, Baby, I've been shot. And police officers then rushed into the household, and he ended up dying. Um, So they supposedly have found a weapon or a weapon was planted. Many individuals who were at the scene or have personal firsthand knowledge of it say that this weapon was planted at the scene. I mean, uh, who goes outside with a pistol outside of your house? But uh, it's a suspicious activity, and it's something that we unfortunately grow desensitized to in New York because the level of antagonistic events like this that occur with enforcement officials, you, you just don't, you're not even surprised anymore. So, you know, just keep your ears open for this in the news and let's just see how it develops
3: abstain until three's program to uh eliminate this misconduct by uh, white supremacist enforcement agents so-called police officers um unfortunately this thing does this sort of behavior misbehavior happens so regularly i think a lot of victims just become Uh, desensitized Uh, psychological terrorism I think that's what Pam and the co-authors of uh, black love as a revolutionary act how they phrase it Um, but yeah we uh, should just expect this sort of thing Central Park case uh, the case that you just mentioned Ayanna Jones this is to be expected this is what dedication to the religion of white supremacy looks like these sorts of incidents We will be back on uh, Wednesday of this week, January 18th. Uh, Benjamin Reese, white man, suspected racist, author of The Showman and the Slave. He'll be here Wednesday evening, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Benjamin Reese, The Showman and the Slave. Um, We did have one listener he called or wrote in and said that he saw unforgivable blackness, thought it was very well done, as for the Central Park Jogger case, Spike Lee mentions the case in Jungle Fever at various times. One of the racists wears a free Fama T shirt. How about that? Uh, it's been a while since I've seen Jungle Fever. I will watch it again just to see uh to see if that is in in fact in Jungle Fever. But I don't think he mentions it and do the right thing. I uh I have to watch him both Don't sleep on Spike Lee. He does often sneak in quite a bit about white supremacy racism. Uh, We'll be here on Wednesday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Context of white supremacy. Thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning in.
2: Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim.
6: Uh, I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been
5: conditioned.